I'm Anand Swami Nathan. I'm here with Jan Schoenberger for the January 2023 MRAP Jan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Swami. I can't believe it's 2023. Woohoo! 2023. Um, I'll be honest, Jan. Not sure that I knew that I would see this day. I think there were some times where I was a little skeptical that there would still be a globe in 2023, but here we are. Well, that got dark. Here we are. I mean, despite lots of natural disasters and other things happening, it is just, it is what it is, but I'm always happy to turn the page on a new year, and I am the eternal optimist. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be a great year. We said it last year, and, and actually, there were some really great high points last year, too. We're just going to have more of those high points. And everyone out there in MRAP land, Happy New Year. I hope that if you worked the New Year's Eve shift, it went as smoothly as humanly possible and that you're listening to this on the way home and you know that Jan and I were there with you in spirit. Absolutely. We are on the shoulder. You went on, we have a little devil on one side, a little <laughs> angel on the other. You Which, decide wait, who's I, who. I'm the devil. Is that <laughs> yeah. what? I, 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 okay. I, I'm all right with that. But um, Jan, I've worked a lot of New Year's Eve shifts. It's kind of like the holiday that I always volunteer into because I'm like, I don't enjoy New Year's Eve. I don't enjoy the parties or anything like that. I'm like, well, someone should work. And it's usually me. And the stories from New Year's Eve are always epic. So at least those of you who worked on New Year's Eve can just take that part away and say, you know what? I have some great stories that I can tell people later. Yes, and lots and lots of glitter. All over the place. <laughs> on you, on the gurneys, just lots of glitter. Uh, there's not a suction catheter in the world that can clean up all that glitter. All right, Jim, let's dive into our intro case. The case. This is one that I saw in our fast track area, and it was a patient with a triage note that said painful swollen leg. And the vital signs were a heart rate of 115, pressure was 132 over 80, sat was 95%, and the temperature was 99.4. So I haven't even walked over to the room yet, but as I'm, I'm doing that and I'm looking at the computer triage note, what should be going through my mind and what's going through your mind in terms of diagnoses and evaluation? Mm, I love little teaser triage notes like that where it's just painful swollen leg. Three words. There could be so much more to it and I'm sure there will be, but of course I'm thinking emergent first, right? Even though some of the things on the emergency list are more rare, less common, that's what we have to do. So I need to know a little more. I'm going to, you know, obviously there's, is this a trauma leg or is this a non-trauma leg? But assuming that it's non-trauma, just thinking through some of the big categories, I'm thinking about vascular emergencies. Is this an ischemic leg? Could there be a DVT or some kind of a clot? Is this an infected leg? Is it neck fash? Is it a septic joint? Is it cellulitis? A swollen leg, I think compartment syndrome. Now that's usually trauma, but it could be non-trauma. I think that's the top of my list. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talked about compartment syndrome recently in an intro, so it can't be that because we're not going to do the same case again. It, it, it's got to be something different, but that's kind of on my list too. And, and the one that I always remind myself about is the vascular emergencies, because I think if I don't think about that going in, maybe I forget to palpate the pulse or I forget to get the Doppler and check to see if they have pulses. But this patient, it was atraumatic. It was a 53-year-old woman. She really doesn't have much past medical history, a little bit of hyperlipidemia, and she's got three days of right leg swelling. And there's also redness and pain. She's got some tactile fevers at home and, and she has 99.4 in triage. We're actually gonna revisit the issue of temperature later on in the program, but this patient is technically afebrile at 99.4, but she says she's got some fevers at home. There's no history of similar in the past. Again, no injuries to the leg. And grossly, when you look at the leg, the right leg is swollen. And there's some erythema from about mid shin to the ankle. There's induration, no clearly fluctuant area. There's no crepitus. There's no streaking up the leg. 
rest of the exam is pretty unremarkable except for that borderline tachycardia that she's got. So given that cursory exam, what else do you want? Now I want to touch the leg and I want to know if there's pulses, is there sensation? How about some motor exam? And, you know, so I'm, I do want to know about the perfusion. This is a, you said she has hyperlipidemia. You know, I don't know if she's really a vasculopath or not. And then when you say that it's swollen, is that around a specific joint? Can I, you know, touch for warmth? What else can you tell me? All right. So the pulses are strong and that's really important. Again, got to remind ourselves of those vascular causes. She's got good, strong pulses. Her sensation is intact. The leg is tender, but she's got full range of motion at the ankle. She's got full range of motion at the knee. We talked about the fact that there is no crepitus. Her motor seems to be pretty good, and, and I can't really localize the swelling just to a joint. Going back to the differential with the exam that we have, what moves kind of up or down your list of things to think about? So when I hear full range of motion, I'm thinking less likely septic joint. That kind of falls down the list. It still could be compartment syndrome. It's a possibility. They just haven't lost pulses yet. Maybe. Still could be DVT, although probably not to the point of any kind of ischemia. That's a possibility. And then I'm thinking about what's rising up on the list is infectious causes. So the cellulitis, neck fash. You gave me that sort of teaser about a possible fever. Now I'm thinking that direction. And the patient looks pretty comfortable, which, you know, I know we talk about compartment syndrome and how they have pain out of proportion to exam, but usually the patients do have quite a bit of pain, at least that they express to you. She's not in that much pain. She looks relatively comfortable with this. She's non-toxic appearing, but that's kind of where I'm focusing too, on the infectious causes, because it's warm and it's hot and she's got that borderline temperature. The question, Jan, that kind of enters my mind, especially because I'm working with residents, a resident is seeing this patient is, okay, it looks like a soft tissue infection, but can I really rule out the DVT here or do I have to get an ultrasound to rule that out? Because we know sometimes patients have a DVT and they get some skin changes too. Can, is there a way that I can rule it out or do I just need to get the ultrasound done? Ooh, this can be tough to tell clinically because for sure a DVT can make a leg engorged, you know, obviously swollen. It can be warm. It could be distended. They could even have a low-grade fever. So none of those things really rule it out. You know, if you want to get into a huge discussion about D-dimer versus lower extremity ultrasound, like how do we take that next step? I think it sort of depends on the patient a little bit more of their history. But luckily, a lower extremity ultrasound is not a big deal. So if I really am suspicious clinically, I'd probably go that route as I'm also sending labs, et cetera. And the cellulitis itself may predispose the patient to getting a DVT. That's also a possibility. I think this was a lot different in the past when it was difficult to get an ultrasound, especially 24 hours a day. More and more departments do have 24-7 lower extremity ultrasound available. And it kind of, if you have it available, it almost makes the D-dimer just like a delaying step because we know that a lot of these patients are going to have a little bit of inflammation. That D-dimer might be kicked up and then I'm just kicking it down the road to get that DVT study. And then of course, Jen, we can do our own DVT study as well. I think all of those things change our reluctance in the past of getting that DVT study to say, you know what, let's just ultrasound it and take a look. And that's kind of the message I gave to the resident too, is like, sometimes it's really hard to tell the two apart. Maybe we should just get that ultrasound done. But we were still kind of focusing in on the fact that this is probably a skin and soft tissue infection. We're going to send the patient off for ultrasound. In the meantime, the next issue that comes up is it looks like cellulitis. I don't feel a fluctuant area, but could there be an abscess kind of just seated underneath there that I'm not feeling? That's always a good question. And it's another reason an ultrasound probe should be in your hand, whether or not you know how to do a DVT rule out study yourself. But looking for that fluid collection, that's where ultrasound is also magic. You know, 
taking a look inside that leg to see if you can see a collection. That is one way to go. Now, let's say you work in a place you don't have ultrasound or you don't have the skills to do it or don't trust your skills. You know, you can do needle aspirations. You can do empiric small incisions if you have an area where you're really suspicious. I mean, that's how we used to do it in the past was to actually go looking for it with sharp things. You know, if we really had a suspicion, we would (laughs) stick a needle in it or, you know, make a little poke. The other option is to just sort of treat it and see where things go. That's another way that you could go if the patient has good, reliable follow-up. They don't look too sick. That might be one way to go. So there's some different pathways here. And I think ultrasound is really useful here when you're on the fence. When you're 100% sure it's cellulitis, the data tells us you're right. When you're 100% sure there's an abscess, the data tells us you're right. When you're kind of in between, I think that's where ultrasound can have a utility. So I don't think you necessarily have to ultrasound every patient with cellulitis, but it can be useful when you're on the fence. And then the next issue that came up, Jan, is, okay, well, it looks like cellulitis, but could it be osteo? Because osteo obviously can have overlying skin changes. It can be a little bit difficult to make that diagnosis. We don't really have a diagnostic modality that clinches it like we do with a DVT or even with abscess if we use an ultrasound. So how do you kind of differentiate those two, the cellulitis and the osteo? Ooh, that's a good one. You know, to make that diagnosis of osteomyelitis, you really will need a MRI or a bone biopsy. So it's probably not a diagnosis that we're going to make. But the question is, how suspicious are you? Osteomyelitis usually has some story around it. They've got hardware in their leg. They've had some kind of surgical procedure or they have some kind of serious systemic illness where they are predisposed to having a hematogenous type of spread to the bone. And so if there's really no reason to have any of those, I'm not really suspecting it. And typically, they're not just a couple of days of swelling and redness. It's usually been a little bit more indolent. It's been going on for a little while longer before you can get osteo. And, you know, the old answer used to be get an x-ray and take a look. But we know x-rays don't perform very well for osteo. So I'm not sure that we can really bank on that. And then, of course, Jane, the last thing that you mentioned that we have to make sure we're not dealing with is neck fash. We have a huge fear of missing this. We've covered this topic a couple of times recently with Mike Weinstock and Susie Demeester last year, Kenji way back in 2020. So at the bedside, what would raise your suspicion for neck fash or reassure you that that's really not what's going on? Well, if it was easy, we wouldn't talk about it so much, <laughs> exactly. you know, but ooh, there's the obvious, there's the crepitus, there's the bully, but you know, you don't always see that. And, you know, you could see a bully and it's not necessarily neck fash, but you know, there's those obvious things. But usually neck fash can look kind of nasty. There's something about it, whether it's dusky or it's, you know, it just it looks a little angrier. You might see some tachycardia up on that monitor that is a little out of proportion to what you're suspecting. And every once in a while, you also see that bell indifference, the patient who sort of doesn't seem concerned about that leg, which is always sort of an interesting finding. But I like to draw lines, you know, with a skin marker for my cellulitis and, and watch to see what happens. I think that's a really good tip, especially when you're, again, on the fence. You're like, I'm not really sure. Draw the line immediately while you're doing everything else, like getting the ultrasound, if you wanted to get labs, and then go back and take a look because neck fash does kind of progress pretty rapidly. And that reevaluation of the patient can be really helpful. So let's go through this particular patient. There really weren't any risk factors for osteo. It only been a couple of days, very well appearing. There was some tenderness, but the patient didn't appear to be in severe pain. So we thought neck fash was less like. And on a repeat temperature check, her temp was 101.4. And that temperature with that tachycardia made us feel a little bit better. We gave a little bit of acetaminophen, fever came down, tachycardia resolved. We did drop an ultrasound probe on the leg to make sure there was no abscess. We saw some cobblestoning, but no pocket of fluid to be drained. Jen, it's kind of a pretty straightforward, simple cellulitis. 
But I like these cases because there's so many different things to think about. There's so many different areas to kind of look at the nuances and say, how can I do this a little bit better? Maybe I've missed a neck fashion in the past, or maybe I've missed an abscess in the past, and these little tips can help us. And so it brought us to our last decision point, which is disposition. Can this patient go home with antibiotics? Should they stay in the hospital with antibiotics? And what antibiotics should I give them? So this involves a discussion of MRSA and risk factors for that, because that will influence your antibiotic choice. And these days in the, in the era of antibiotic stewardship, we want to you know, make sure that we're picking an antibiotic that is narrow enough to cover what we think are the most likely organisms, not too broad, right? We don't want to just shotgun it with, you know, a bunch of vanco biocin if we don't think that's, you know, really something they need. So I'm probably going for cephalexin. I don't hear anything that's telling me that this is MRSA. I don't hear about an abscess. I don't hear about anything else. So I'm probably going to go for cephalexin, something a little more narrow coverage. Yeah, the cellulitis itself is more likely to be strep than staph. And this patient has never had a cellulitis or an abscess before, which makes me Again, choose for the cephalexin. It's going to cover the strep. It's going to cover the staph that's not MRSA. If the patient had like recurrent abscesses, then maybe I'd be reaching for the Bactrim plus the cephalexin, so that TMP SMX plus the cephalexin. If the patient had a history of IV drug use or skin popping, then I'm definitely going to be concerned about MRSA. But the patient really didn't have any of those risk factors. That's pretty good follow up. So we went with cephalexin alone. And told the patient, follow up with your doctor in a couple of days, maybe three days, four days, unless something gets worse, or just come back and see us. And she actually did end up coming back to see us just to check, and everything was totally fine. So it was a very simple, straightforward case. We did talk about that admission versus discharge, but this patient looked so well, there really wasn't any question about whether they could go home. But I think if you're on the border, or if the patient can't really get the medications, they may be homeless, and all of those things should be taken into account when you think, should this patient be admitted for that treatment as opposed to being discharged? And Jen, while our impetus is to say, if I'm keeping the patient for observation or for admission, I'm going to switch them to IV antibiotics. Just remember, you don't always have to do IV antibiotics just because you're keeping them in the hospital. Yes. That PO antibiotics, they get very well absorbed. We've had several segments on that. It's a good way to go. And I do like observation as an option if they really can't get back to the hospital or they can't walk on that leg because of pain, or there's just something that's giving you a spidey sense that it's maybe not a good idea to send them home or you just want to be sure. You know, we have an OBS unit. I like to put some of these patients there. Not always, but if I think that that's warranted. Let's hit a couple of quick take-homes, Jan, before we move on with the program. Atraumatic leg swelling and pain. We think about the infectious stuff like skin and soft tissue infections and neck fascia and abscess and osteo, of course, DVT, and then the arterial occlusion. That's the one that I always have to remind myself to check out, check for those pulses. Ultrasound is a huge boon here because we can look for the abscess, we can diagnose the cellulitis, we can rule out the DVT, we can even check for pulses and flow if you can't palpate them. So a lot of advantages to using your ultrasound. And then if you diagnose cellulitis, most of your patients can probably go home with oral antibiotics and you don't always have to cover MRSA. Just really think through that process. Does the patient have risk factors for it, recurrent abscesses, other comorbid conditions that might make you think that? Otherwise, a first-generation cephalosporin alone is usually going to be very adequate. And with that, Jen, let's move into the rest of the program and what we've got on tap. There are so many good segments. I'm going to say that my favorite one, and there's a little bit of a theme that runs through my favorite segments, but my favorite one is the altered mental status case with SWAD and Jess. And the reason I love that case is because it is two expert clinicians talking about how they work through a case. And that, to me, is so powerful. It's priceless to hear these people with such great clinical experience talking about how they piece together a case and figure out what's going on. 
I love hearing that too. And we're not going to tell you what it is. You're just going to have to listen to the segment. (laughs) This month, I really enjoyed the piece about unvaccinated kids because that is becoming more common, unfortunately. So that was a good piece. And I also like the piece you did with Weingart on taking critical patients to CT scan because it's so practical. And, you know, this again, it's sort of walking through what are the considerations? What do I need to be worried about? What should I do? Because sometimes it's just such judgment. You know, it's about it's a very subjective decision. So sometimes it's not. But when it's subjective, I like to hear the thought process. And Jen, I might be preaching to the choir a little bit, but I think a lot of people think that we're MRAP. But we have a lot that goes together with MRAP, including Corpendium, our our textbook, our online textbook, which is just over a year old now. There's so much good stuff there, but I feel like we haven't gotten as much feedback on Corpendium as we kind of want to make it better. Yeah, you know, Corpendium is such a great resource. You have it on your phone. It's on an app. And let me tell you, in 2023, it is continuing to grow with lots more pictures, lots more resources. So we'd love to hear from you guys that if you have found that Corpendium has been a really useful resource for you, maybe even some specific examples of how it has helped you in your patient care and you you know pulled it up in a pinch and found the answer you needed, we'd love to hear those stories so that we know how Corpendium is working for you. And you know, the other thing that'd be really great too is the way that a lot of these chapters get written is that one of us is working, we see something, and then we go over and we're like, okay, type into Corpendium so I can learn about this topic. And we're like, it's not here. And so then we go back to the editors and we say, hey guys, we need a chapter on this because I have the patient in front of me now and I don't know what to do. So if you run into that situation where you're looking at Corpendium and you're trying to find information and you can't find it, let us know. And well, basically what we'll do is we'll twist Amal's arm and tell him that he's got to write that chapter today so we can get it out. Yeah, because he's not busy. I mean, he's, he's got not nothing really better doing deal. anything else. Yeah, That's what he so, told me. He said, I'm writing yeah. Corpendium chapters all day. Irony. <laughs> but this is the beauty of Corpendium is its dynamic nature. It can change in a heartbeat way faster than any kind of traditional textbook can. So it is a dynamic thing that is growing and being improved by its user base. It's the user base that really influences this. So your feedback is critically important. With that, Jan, I think we should launch into the rest of the month because we do have some really great segments we want everyone to listen to. And Jan, I'll see you on the other side of the mailbag. Yeah, let's get into 2023, folks. And we got a great episode for you, so let's take it away. Now, the next part is very important. They are going to take you. Well, that got dark. It's time again for... Critical Care Mailbag. Scott Weingott. Absolutely. Scott, how's it going, man? How are you? It's going super well, Swami. How are you doing, man? Scott, I'm good. And I got, I heard this the other day, and I want to repeat this EM aphorism to you, but I'm going to leave a blank and you're going to fill in the blank. Patients go to blank to die. Patients go to the round tube of death. The round tube of death. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. I mean, you haven't been an emergency physician long enough until you've seen a patient crash and almost die or die in CT scan. Am I correct to say that? Well, that, that's the belief that was there when we were training. And I don't know, I, I'm sure some people still feel that way, but I hope not because they're really missing out on a whole bunch of diagnoses that can be made safely that actually don't really have alternatives. The reason it was the tube of death was because they would send these patients with a transporter and then you get a call from CTO, your patient's in a cardiac arrest. That doesn't happen in sick patients because there's at least a doctor and a nurse accompanying these patients. They could be a resident, but there needs to be both of those professions with a sick patient in CT. It's not one you send with the transporter. Well, Scott, then let's try to fix this problem because you're right. Sometimes these patients are super sick and I need that advanced imaging to get the diagnosis, not just because I want the diagnosis, 
but that diagnosis may be linked to a specific procedure or treatment that they may need. And instead of just saying, this patient's super sick, I've stabilized as best I can, get them to the ICU, they can do the imaging later, maybe we can stabilize the patient a little bit more to get them to the advanced imaging they need. So whether it be sepsis or trauma or aortic dissection. Well, that's the one. I, I, I want to tell a, a little story of my own on that one, Swami. Ooh, okay, okay, go for it. When I was a resident, we had this really strong suspicion of aortic dissection in a patient and mental status was going in and out probably from the carotid occlusion, starting and stopping. It was pretty obvious to everyone that this patient was gonna die really soon if something didn't change. And my attending, who was excellent, but was taught this initial belief of you can't go to CT with an unstable patient. We got the cardiology attending to drive in to do a TEE on this patient. And as they were doing the TEE, the patient ruptured and went into cardiac arrest. And that was 45 minutes after we all knew this is a dissection and we really just need to get imaging so that they could get their operation. And that just shouldn't happen. There was nothing we did in that 45 minutes in the ED that we couldn't have done in the CT scanner. And that leads us into what we're gonna talk about. All right, so the first thing you're gonna do before you go to CT is you're gonna try to do that resuscitation. But the problem I think that you are looking at in that case that I'm looking at is how do we balance the time for resuscitation with the need for diagnosis? Absolutely. So what it comes down to is if you still have to do procedures to stabilize the patient, then you shouldn't be going to CT yet. So if they need a chest tube because of their trauma, then it's not great to be doing a chest tube in the CT scanner. They really, really don't appreciate that. And you might not be able to get scans for the rest of the month if you uh, get blood all over their walls. So that obviously needs to get done. If the patient doesn't have adequate access, get the access. I am an enormous fan of patients who are sick going to the scanner, having arterial line monitoring because it gives us a real beat to beat. And we know that if the blood pressure starts getting low, we see it instantaneously as opposed to a blood pressure cuff. So I'll take the time, and it shouldn't be a lot of time, to put in an art line in most of the patients who are super sick going to CT. Assuming it's something that could cause either hypotension, like a trauma or, or a bleed, or something that could cause hypertension where we care, for instance, like an intracranial type situation where a high blood pressure would be deleterious or aortic dissections in that category as well. So we have access, we have an A-line, we have whatever procedures we need to do to stabilize. And then you have to ask yourself a question, which is, is there anything else that's going to be done for this patient that I can't do in the you know, numerous breaks that a CT scan gives you for you know, now the nurse has to go in and make sure the injection's okay. Now the nurse has to go in and adjust the table, whatever. And so like things like the patient's going to need more blood transfusion should not be something that precludes going to CT scanner. All right. That makes a lot of sense because obviously you can run the infusion while they are getting scanned. And honestly, yes, you can get a unit of blood in while the scan's going. And as soon as it's done, as soon as they have that little pause, you hang the next couple of units while they're readjusting to get that next scan. Our scans are relatively quick, although no trip to the scanner is nearly as fast as we'd like it to be. With those breaks, you're right. We can still come in and do things. So clearly, if there's a procedure that needs to be done, do it before you go to the scanner. That makes sense. One of the other pitfalls that I see here, Scott, is that sometimes we're pushing for CT when there is another modality that can give us an answer. Okay, give me an example. So if I can get a point of care ultrasound quickly that gives me an answer, shouldn't I be pulling for that instead of the CT scan? Sure. We're talking about daytime hours. We're not talking about nighttime on a Saturday or where the consultant or the radiologist is out of house. I'm talking about the radiologist is next door or the tech is next door and I can get that 
imaging done very quickly. Would you then go for the ultrasound over the CT scan or are, you still, are there still situations where you say, I understand the ultrasound can get me the answer. I still think CT is the way to go. Yeah, you know, I'm having some trouble thinking of the circumstances by which point-of-care ultrasound would obviate taking a super sick patient to CT because I don't take super sick patients to CT unless there's a life threat in the balance of that scan. So the things I'm trying to postulate in my head where that would be obviated by an ultrasound, I'm not really seeing them because for most of the modalities ultrasound would help with, I would have already done the point-of-care ultrasound myself. And most of these circumstances are not one that are amenable to ultrasound discerning what the hell you, you need to know. Like even like a dissection, which is a great example as a counter, I think, is yeah, there are some times on a point-of-care ultrasound, I could see the dissection flaps sitting there in the aortic outflow or in the descending aorta when I pop it onto the abdomen. But I'm not going to get this patient to an operating room without a CT scan. It's not possible in the current way that these surgeries are done. They need a roadmap. They need to know the vasculature of the abdomen. They need to know the extension and which uh, vessels it actually is knocking off. And so uh, just knowing they have it doesn't stop this super sick CT. And the TEE often will take longer, even if the cardiologist happens to be in the department, the TEE is in hand. That can still take longer to get done. Yeah, it's funny. That, that doesn't even do it anymore. In, in our current world, that will diagnose a dissection and it will not provide the information needed to go to the OR. Now, look, if the patient goes into arrest, then they're going to go to the OR. <laughs> you know, you don't put a dead patient on the CT scanner, but it's going to be a markedly inferior operation. It's going to be all open. It's going to be a blood show. And it's just not the way things are done now. Most of the things are done are with stent grafts percutaneously, and you really need the CT. So the TE doesn't even obviate the necessity of stopping by the scanner for a super sick patient. Trauma is another one, right? It used to be, oh, oh, they're unstable. Go to the OR. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's an unnecessary operation in many cases. And second of all, they don't necessarily know what they're looking for. Now, in ELAP, they'll figure it out, but it could be a lot more invasive. And they find that it wasn't anything that was really- Amenable to yeah, that exactly, surgical procedure. Exactly right. right. You know, if it turns out to be all retroperitoneal, they might not touch a big kidney bleed in there and just leave it be. So, you know, if they're peri-death, then yes, you got to go to the OR. Or if they have an obvious need for an ELAP, like a gunshot wound to the abdomen that's not tangential. Yes, just go if they're unstable. But in many cases, we now will take patients who 25 years ago would never have gone to CT and go to CT safely and find out what the actual injuries are. Now, what we should talk about next is how to get them there safely once you've made the decision to go. Absolutely. And the trauma one is really important, Scott, because I know we were all taught the unstable patient goes to the OR. But what we see time and time again is that our trauma surgery colleagues will take them to CT first, and it does change the direction of management they go in. They're not always going directly to the OR when you're like, oh, patient's unstable after a blunt trauma, they're going to the OR. They go to CT scan, all of a sudden they end up in IR instead because now they found the right procedure to do for the pathology the patient has. So it really no longer is that straight line of patient's unstable after trauma, they go to the OR. The CT scan makes a marked difference, unless you work in one of those special places that has IR and the OR in the same place, which most of us don't. And it really is a branch point in which direction they're going. No, I mean, even in those hybrid ORs, you're not going to want to mobilize that entire infrastructure when you could have found out that they don't have anything, you know, in their pelvic region that, that requires to bring them in. So even in those cases, you're going to go to CT. Still need the CT. Yeah. So it, it just basically, you go to CT. That's the answer now. You go to CT. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. So then let's, let's talk about how to do it, Scott, because I think what our fear is, is that we can't perform a proper resuscitation for that patient while they're in the scanner. So 
regardless of what the pathology is that I'm concerned about, I want to go to CT. What am I going to do before I go to CT to make sure that the patient isn't going to crash and die in the scanner? Yeah. And you know, a lot of this crash and die in the scanner came from a time when EDs and radiology were built in very disparate geographies in the hospital. And I think many places have gone away from this. I don't know where at your old place, Swami, was your CT scanner in relation to your ED? It's pretty close. It's within 50 feet. Yeah, exactly. I have definitely workplaces where it's like down the block around the corner. Yeah. So I'm more concerned and would plan more assiduously if it's two floors up like it is in some places. But at my old shop and my new one, the CT scanner is literally 20 feet from our recess bay. So if we forget something, we just send one of our runners that we brought with us to go grab it. And it's nothing. So I I plan a lot less in those situations than I would for ones where we have to take a field trip, you know, that you got to take a bus, you got to get your permission slips from your parents. So it's a different planning. But in both cases, you're, what you're going to do is ask yourself, what could I possibly need to continue the resuscitation of this patient and bring it with you? Which means if it's a trauma patient or a bleed, you bring the level one or the Belmont with you. You go and send someone to blood bank to bring, you know, four, five, six units of blood and FFP sitting there in a cooler in the CT scan room. You then get the patient on the table in the way that the people in the room could actually continue monitoring. This pisses me off so much is they start the scan and they've tilted the monitor the wrong way and I can't see it. And what we actually built at my previous place to counter this is we were able to plug in the little box that comes with the monitors, you know, the thing that you know, all the cables are hooked up to. A lot of the monitors now, you can just take off the box and put it into a new slot in the place you wind up. And we built one of those in CT so that we could just not have the portable monitor we plugged the patient into CT scans monitors, and then it came up in the control room on, you know, like a real thing that everyone could see to know what's going on with the patient. So building stuff like that really helps, but otherwise just put the portable monitor on the CT gurney in a way that you could see it from the control room. And it means if the patient's being monitored for blood pressure for aortic dissection, and, you know, you've only started them on the Esmolol so far, bring the damn nicardipine with you because they're going to need it and they're going to need while they're in CT. So it's really planning and then getting into a mode where you're ready for the next step of resuscitation on those breaks you have in the CT scanner. And then I guess a little bit to discuss is just the layout of CT. If you're on a hospital planning committee right now and you're building the CT control room for a new place, build it for about 15 people. Because that's what it needs to be in places that take care of really sick patients. You need to have computers there that aren't owned by the radiology folks so that you could put orders in, so the nurses could get additional potentially uh, controlled medications out for the patient while they're in CT. You need the ability to look at images. You know, have you ever been in an old CT control room where you want to look at the CT that was just done while they're doing the next one? And they're like, no, you can't use that monitor. That's for the next patient. You, You need to plan that this is how things are done in 2022 is you're going to have a swarm come with this patient and they're going to want to be able to continue doing the things they need to do while the patient's on the table. Yeah, the ordering medications or ordering the extra study that when you get into CT, they're like, oh, we found this, we need this study. And then having to run out and use another computer. Oh, it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And it would be great to also have some of the medications available right there But you're right. If you're close by, it's not that big a deal to run back to your trauma bay or your resuscitation bay, whatever the lockup is for your medications and grab them. But if you're going far away, then you either need to take those medications with you or the medications need to be at CT scan. And let's be honest, 
if you're going far away, probably you're just gonna have to bring everything with you. Yeah, bring what you need. Now, we also did build an airway bag, very similar to the ones we used in the ED for the CT scanner. And we, we had one of those hanging on the wall in the control room such that if we needed to intubate, we were actually ready. And we will always bring the intubation meds with us. And every CT scanner has BVMs and, and oropharyngeal suctions in there, either separate or in their code cards. So you're good on those, but having the equipment you want. Are you lowering your threshold to intubate before you go to CT? That's a great point. If there's any doubt, like if part of your brain is like, oh, should I just intubate him? Then yes, just intubate him. Generally, the patients you're, we're talking about will get intubated anyway at some point. So yeah, that's a fantastic point, Swami. One of the things that if we had Andrew Petrosoniak or Chris Hicks on, they would say that while you're doing that scan or before you go to scan, you're going to want to talk with your team game plan in that first break when the CT are, is readjusting, they have to do something. What are we going to be going in and doing for that patient? Do we have plans of things that we need to do during those breaks or what are we going to be looking for? So it's that preparation for what could happen to this patient or what is going to happen to this patient while they're on the table that can really help the team to be ready. And then that, of course, helps you have your medications ready that you actually need to have in the room. Absolutely right. Yes. And then I guess the last point I would make is don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Figure out what scans you actually need before the patient, you know, takes this really arduous, you know, uh, resource intensive trip. You don't want to do it twice, right? So if you have a trauma patient with a lateral compression pelvic fracture, order the damn CT cystogram. Don't, you know, have this super sick trauma patient get an entire like pan scan and then have to go back at some point from the SICU or trauma ICU to get their cystogram. You know, just think ahead of time and err on the side maybe of a little extra radiation if it means avoiding the risk of transport on a super sick patient. That's huge. And it's such a great point that in the super sick patient, once you've decided to go to CT, Get anything that you possibly think you will need or your consultants will need, or even better, just check with your consultants and say, yes. is there anything that I'm not going to get exactly that you right. want so I don't have to come back? And this is why when we admit to the ICU and we haven't gotten those scans, they're like, can we scan the patient on the way up? Like, just hold the patient until the scanner is ready. We'll come down. We'll take them to scan before we come upstairs. Just because of the immense amount of resources it takes to bring the patient back to CT scan. We know how much resources it takes just to bring them from the ED back to the CT scanner. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, I guess I'll add one additional point based on what you just said, because it was so prescient. In many hospitals, ED has a lock on slots for CT scan, and we could get them readily, we could get them rapidly. Once they get up to the ICU, having lived on both sides of this issue, uh, even emergent scans, like I'm going to like, you know, tell them my patient's going to die unless you get this imaging for me, takes an enormous amount of time to get into the schedule, even if it's a crashing patient. And so when your consultants upstairs, you know, just beg you, please get the scan done before they come up to us. It's not just laziness on their part or the desire not to do the transport. It is because there's an excellent chance if they don't get the scan as an ED patient, they will not get it for 24 hours. It's a great point and something that we can help out our critical care colleagues with before they're taking that patient up to the unit. It's not that they don't want them. They just want to get as much information as they can, the easiest way that they can possibly get it to help that patient. Summary. All right, Scott. So what I think I'm taking away from this is one, we should not be as scared as we used to be about taking a patient to the CT scanner if the CT scanner is what we need to get the diagnosis to get that patient to the procedure or treatment that they need. But we still should be adequately preparing before we go. If the patient needs any procedure done, do it before you go to CT scan lower your threshold to intubate that patient because you really don't want to intubate in CT, but you can also prepare yourself in the CT scanner 
to give the patient that resuscitation they need. So have your airway equipment in the scanner room just in case something goes wrong. If it's a trauma patient or a GI bleeding patient or, or whatever that patient is that is bleeding, make sure that you have blood products available. Get an A-line in those patients and set up the monitor so that you can see it in the control room. And while most of us don't have the actual ability to change the architecture of the room, if you're in the planning phases of your emergency department radiology suite, make a nice big room that lots of people can be in. There can be extra computers, extra monitors to see the images, because anytime you go with that critically ill patient, it's not just going to be the couple of radiology people and then the doc and a nurse. There's going to be 15 or 20 people in there. They all want to be in that room. And not only do they want to be in that room, they need to be in that room. They need to be able to see what's going on. They need to be able to put in the next orders. So try to plan so that you can actually deliver that proper care. Absolutely. Scott Weingott. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all. This is Vanessa Cardi, and I'm back with another rural medicine case. So this was the case of a little 18-month-old girl who'd been brought into our remote emergency room for what her grandparents described as a severe nosebleed. They weren't sure why it had started, there was no recent trauma, and the patient was not noted to have been a nose picker. The nosebleed had lasted about 15 minutes, didn't seem to be provoked by anything particular, but it had actually stopped by the time she was seen in triage. The grandparents were caring for the little girl as the patient's mom was out of town for a medical appointment in the South, and the grandparents had said the nosebleed was so intense that even though it had now stopped, they still wanted to stay for an MD assessment. Now, I was in the emergency room at this time, but it was my colleague, Dr. Sarah Lalonde, who picked up the chart and went to see the patient. She got the history of the nosebleed, as already described, and she also asked a few other questions and picked up a few details from the little one's chart. The little girl was generally healthy, apart from a mild iron deficiency anemia that was noted at nine months of age. She'd taken some iron supplementation for a few months, and then the follow-up labs at around 12 months of age had been totally normal. She was up to date on her vaccinations, and aside from catching COVID about three weeks prior, she'd had no medical issues of note in her 18 months. Now, the little girl was very, very scared of healthcare workers, and it was really hard to examine her, but with some time and patience, my colleague did a very thorough exam. Her heart rate was around 180, but she was screaming at the top of her lungs. Her oxygen was 100%, and she was afebrile, but it was really impossible to gauge her respirate as she was hollering so much. But she was vigorous and mad, you know, which can be good signs, and she didn't have any signs of active bleeding from the nose. Now, I think many of us would have very easily said, kid looks well, bleeding stopped, child's next to impossible to examine, just send them home. But not this doctor. She took the time to do a thorough exam, and she was actually kind of alarmed by what she found. So stop for a second and do that mental thing. What would you do in this kid? What exam would make you feel better or worse? What things are you looking for? So just do that mental thing right now. Here we go. Do, 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 do. And we will continue. She saw a big bruise on the underside of the child's chin and significant bruising behind both of her ears. There were some little scabbed over areas behind the ears and along the hairline, as well as a few on the face, and the grandparents said, oh, those are just mosquito bites. She's really been scratching them a lot, and they didn't seem concerned at all. But Dr. Lalonde thought that this didn't quite fit, so she kept looking. She checked the chest and the abdomen and didn't find anything unusual. But a check of the arms and the legs revealed multiple bruises in different stages of healing. The little girl didn't seem to have any pain in any of the areas of bruising, and there were no visible deformities, but the bruises were certainly prominent, particularly on the anterior shins. So Dr. Lalonde came back to the nursing station and said, I'm worried about this kid. She either has something weird going on with her blood, or she's being abused. 
She ordered a bunch of labs and had me come in and help her complete parts of the exam. As I said before, the little girl was so scared of healthcare workers that she was really hard to examine, so I was really there to try and distract the patient whilst Dr. Lalonde finished off the exam. She got a pretty good look at the abdomen and didn't feel or notice anything unusual, and she checked the diaper region. Nothing too remarkable there except for a few tiny pinpoint lesions, which I fear many of us, myself included, would probably have overlooked. But she looked really carefully and she noted that these were non-blanching. But overall, the little girl looked really well. She was very feisty, very strong, and despite being scared of the healthcare workers, she was very easily consolable by her grandparents who were with her and who were being very attentive. It didn't raise too many red flags in that regard for non-accidental trauma. So I went off about my business, and Dr. Lalonde kept seeing other people while we waited for the labs. Then the phone rang, and it was a lab calling the nursing station to let us know some critical results. This little girl had a hemoglobin of 66, which in the U.S. units is 6.6, and platelets of, wait for it, zero. Zero. It had been about 30 minutes since the labs had been drawn, and the little girl was literally running around the emergency department while she and her family waited for results. Dr. Lalonde gathered the grandparents and the little girl back in the exam room, and she explained the findings. She explained that the little one was going to need to be sent by medevac down to Montreal for further treatment and testing, and that the family needed to stay here and to keep the kid quiet and calm until it was all arranged. At this point, it was around midnight, and Dr. Lalonde's shift was finished, so the case was signed over to me for the night. So the first thing I did was to sit down, try and gather my thoughts and come up with a plan. But before I could do that, I caught sight of this little patient being raced around the department in a small umbrella stroller. Now, for those of you who haven't had kids, those aren't the super sturdy, massive strollers that look heftier than some small, lightweight aircraft. These are the little fold-up strollers that have a sort of a bit of material as a seat, and they have a folding mechanism that is designed to pinch your fingers every single time. You see, what had happened was that a few other family members had come in to help with the patient, and they were trying to distract her. Unfortunately, the unrestrained stroller racing and the oh-so-much-fun tossing of the patient from one grandpa to the other wasn't really a part of the management for someone with zero platelets. So the first thing I had to actually do was go in there and scare them half to death. Well, I didn't actually mean to do that exactly, but that's how it ended up. You see, I popped in and explained again what having zero platelets means and how we have to keep this little girl as calm as possible. I explained that bleeding from a cut on her arm or leg if she fell could be very bad, but at least we'd be able to apply pressure. But if she fell and bumped her head with all of the stroller racing and tossing about, she could bleed into her brain and that could be fatal. Now the four grandparents were in there staring at me wide-eyed and then the grandmas both started to sob. I felt awful for having been so blunt, but I didn't know how else to express my level of concern. I showed how bruised the patient was along her hairline and behind her ears and explained that that was just from scratching mosquito bites that had bitten her there and they seemed to understand that what I meant once they had had that visual. So I returned to the nursing station and tried to put together my differential. At the top were malignancy and ITP. Her white count was normal, which was reassuring but not definitive, but she had an iron deficiency anemia again. Was this from chronic blood loss due to dwindling platelets, or was it all much more acute? Now, aside from the nosebleed, there was nothing else on history that really suggested occult blood loss and no noted red flags for malignancy. Because the patient had only just started staying with the grandparents the day before when the mom left town for her appointment, they didn't know if she'd had any viral illnesses in the last couple of weeks, except for the history of COVID about three weeks before. So I was still certainly hoping that this was ITP. Now, we do have a blood bank there with around a dozen units of packed red cells, and we have FFP, but no platelets. And I knew that this child had to get to a pediatric center, so I woke up the very kind pediatric hematologist on call. Now, after a few minutes of listening to the case, She accepted the patient for transfer, and then started telling me how to transfuse the platelets. 
I felt so bad for her when I had to explain that we didn't actually have platelets. Then she started saying, oh dear, oh dear, sort of under her breath, and you could tell she was really trying to think. And then there was just silence on the other end of the phone. Again, do that uh, thing that you should do when you listen to these, is what would you do under that circumstance? So you've got a kid, no platelets, they're not bleeding to death, but they've got no platelets and they've had some mucocutaneous bleeding. What could you give that potentially could reduce the chance of them bleeding? The differential diagnosis here is obviously this could be an autoimmune problem. It could be an underlying cancer. I don't know. It could be drug-induced, some sort of post-viral myelosuppression. There's a whole bunch of things that it could be. But what could you use? What you talk about? So then I decided to chime in with a cheery tone and say, oh, but uh, we do have IVIG. That brightened her up a little. And she gave me the dose to use and told me to follow our local administration protocol. That certainly seemed reasonable enough, as I know we've given IVIG before, and I didn't think too much more about it. The next question was whether or not I should transfuse the little girl with packed red blood cells. Given that her hemoglobin was 66, or 6.6, I had ordered two units right off the bat before even calling hematology. But our savvy lab tech reminded me that we don't have irradiated blood, and that the specialist might want to do something different, or at the very least order certain labs before we started a transfusion in a kid of this age. Thank goodness for team members doing their job so well, even in the middle of the night, because I would have missed that. The hematologist would have preferred to wait until the child was in the city where they could receive irradiated blood, but given that the plane was going to take about 8 to 10 hours before it got to us and then back down to Montreal, we decided between us that it would be best to proceed with a transfusion of one unit after having drawn a myriad of viral serologies and blood cultures. And then we went to prepare the IVIG, and that's when we quickly realized that we don't actually have a local protocol for IVIG administration in a pediatric patient under the age of two. So then I started searching the literature in an attempt to find some standardized protocols. Unfortunately, every single reference I looked up provided a different dose parameter, and the nurses were rightly uncomfortable with this degree of uncertainty. But this was when being in a small hospital paid off. The two nurses on shift remembered a young patient we had who was now about five, but who for many years had required IVIG infusions. We'd always followed the Montreal Children's Hospital protocol, which was faxed to us every few months and updated based on his weight, and which we always kept in his chart. So one nurse went to the archives department, found his chart, and within a few minutes we had access to that age-appropriate protocol. After that, things actually went pretty smoothly, aside from the plane being further delayed. At one point, we had to decide whether we might delay her transfer and piggyback a septic patient onto the plane with her, but the flight nurse did not feel comfortable with this plan, so ultimately our decision was made for us. She went on the first plane that we could get, and she had a successful trip to Montreal. After a myriad of tests, a transfusion of platelets, and a short admission, she was diagnosed with ITP and discharged to the day hospital with a platelet count of 56. However, two days later, a repeat CBC showed platelets of 30, so she was given another dose of IVIG before being sent back up north. The plan is for her to have close follow-up in the north, with weekly CBCs and IVIG as needed, and of course, follow-up from peds and hematology. Summary. This case brought up a few good points. If you have to give non-irradiated blood to a kid, then try to draw baseline viral cultures before the transfusion. And you also might want to check with hematology before transfusing blood, assuming they aren't exsanguinating, for someone who could potentially need repeated transfusions in the future, because of course there's a risk of developing antibodies, which could complicate future therapies. But what really gave me pause for thought, or more accurately, what really gives me the heebie-jeebies when I think about it a lot, is how easily this could have been missed. My colleague Dr. Lalonde did a fantastic job faking up those few tiny petechiae, 
and being so diligent as to look behind your ears when she saw the extreme bruising that seemed to have developed from just rubbing those mosquito bites that she had. Luckily, those bruises weren't related to her basilar skull fracture, and it really was just from rubbing mosquito bites. But Dr. Lalonde saved this little girl's life, and this story reminded me that sometimes we need to just slow down and think and really look at the patient. Otherwise, we could miss the only clue that we're going to get. So again, this is a great case when you don't have, you don't even have platelets and you've got a kid who's got a plate count of zero. They're not bleeding right now, but they could at any moment, right? So the differential diagnosis, as we talked about, is fairly broad and you don't really know what's going to work. So you use IVIG, but what if it's cancer? Is it going to help for that? So I would just sort of think about all of the things you could do and then run it by your consultant. I don't think there's anything else you can do. So you can think about IVIG, you can think about steroids, you can think about TXA, you can think about DDAVP. I don't know how that's going to work when there's no platelets. I think it's a really good point before you want to jump on treating the anemia that's associated with this. Again, you want to talk to your consultant and get the rainbow of uh, bloods at least, and then really question whether you need to give blood right now if they're not bleeding, because that might complicate therapies and diagnosis later on. So this is definitely one of those ones that do a good exam, key, and then when you have a differential diagnosis that's wide and a series of therapies that are very specific to certain diseases, you're kind of in a data-free environment. Ah, rural medicine. It's scary out there. Well, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Rebecca Bavlek. She's the residency program director at UCLA and is also a professor of clinical emergency medicine at UCLA. Rebecca Bavlek. Rebecca Bavlek. Now, if you can remember, it wasn't that long ago, back in 2020 and 2021, Rebecca and Mel did a three-part series on chest pain in pregnancy. If you haven't listened to it, it's really fantastic. Go back and take a listen. And in particular, February 2021, they focused really on the workup and diagnosis for PE. I'm glad you were recently in my head because I recently needed to bring all of that knowledge into a real life case, which is why I wanted to speak with you today. Yes, thank you, Jess. It's such a pleasure to be here and, and I appreciate that. So let me tell you a little bit about this case. We're taking care of a 16-year-old young woman. She does not speak English, speaks Spanish, and she is 39 weeks pregnant. She gets sent down to us from the labor and delivery triage area so that we can evaluate her for chest pain. So she describes basically an acute onset of pain. And it's not actually really her chest, it's more her back. She says it's between her shoulder blades. It started earlier in the morning. And since then it's been constant, persistent, and it's pretty severe. It's eight out of 10. She says it doesn't radiate. It doesn't cause shortness of breath. It's not making her nauseous or sweaty. She has a little bit of a cough, but no known COVID exposures. And this case took place during the height of the Omicron surge for COVID. So COVID is basically everywhere at this point. Yes, who doesn't have COVID basically? She tells us that she also hasn't had a fever or chills or body aches, no leg swelling. And we ask her about her family history. Specifically, she says no history of blood clots or heart disease at a young age, pretty uneventful as far as she knows course, the things that are sort of worrying me at this point are severe and acute onset. And even though it's during the height of COVID, certainly doesn't sound like a COVID prodrome or infection of COVID. So I think we're worrying about pulmonary embolus 
or dissection or something along those lines are the immediate things that start to pop into my head. When I think about a patient like this, especially in the fact that she's late in her third trimester. So if you remember many of these etiologies that we went over uh, back in, in that series at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, all of them increased in incidence with each trimester. So let me tell you her exam. Okay, starting with her vitals. She is quite tachycardic. Really the 130s, 140s, pretty fast. Blood pressure's normal, pulse ox is normal, respiratory rate's normal. And her temperature is 99.3 Fahrenheit, which is 37.3 Celsius. Yeah, her heart rate, you know, heart rate does pick up again normally in pregnancy. People are relatively tachycardic, but 130 is certainly outside of the realm of what we would even consider quote unquote normal increase in heart rate in the setting of pregnancy. So certainly pretty tachycardic. Interesting that she's not tachypnic or hypoxic. However, you know, I think you and I have both seen many times uh, people that have, you know, pulmonary emboli who are like, I'm breathing fine. So the pain and the tachycardia makes me start to think about that diagnosis for sure. And we know that young people compensate very well. So it's definitely concerning. And when you look at her, she looks a little bit distressed. She does not look comfortable. But on further exam, other than being tachycardic, heart sounds good. Lungs are nice and clear. Obviously, her abdomen's gravid, but otherwise unremarkable. And we take a close look at her extremities. You're kind of hoping you find something on the extremities so you can start with a different workup than going straight to a test that involves radiation. And we see no swelling anywhere in her extremities. I mean, maybe the tiny bit of normal pregnancy swelling, but nothing that's really concerning. We kind of palpate her extremities. But when we get up to her left thigh, she has a little bit of tenderness there. Nothing impressive. She is a little bit tender there. So when she was up in OB triage, they drew some labs, but they didn't give her any medications. They didn't give her any fluids. So that's a good place to start. So let's pause there for a second. Let's talk about with this information, what is the workup that you're thinking about? Yeah, well, you know, especially with that left thigh pain, DVT, especially in the left leg, is more common in pregnant patients, especially as you progress through the trimesters because of the compression of the uterus to the left-sided circulation. And so the fact that it is her left thigh, and in general, iliofemoral DVTs are much more prominent in pregnant people. So Obviously, when you want to start and look for a DVT in your right chest, you want to pull back that blanket and you're like, ooh, it's a slam dunk if that left leg is swollen and tender. You're like, all right, this is probably a DVT. And even though there's a PE, I could potentially just get a, a Doppler. And if it's there, then we treat it and, and we move on without kind of having to go down the algorithm. But that would be always where I would start. Of course, treat her fever. However, I think with the tachycardia and if pulmonary embolus is somewhere in your differential, getting out that echo and taking a look at her heart, because if you see a lot of right heart strain, you do want to be careful with a lot of fluids in this person. Those are some really great points. So obviously, it sounds like we're both kind of thinking the same thing here in terms of that PE workup. PE is a huge concern here. And if we can start with a DVT ultrasound, we're going to go with that. And that's what we did. because. If you're thinking maybe she has an iliofemoral clot, a more proximal clot, the test for that is a CT. 
And at that point, it's like, well, we might as well CT her chest because that's where the pain is. So before I would jump to CTing her abdomen and pelvis right through where the baby is, we would probably go up to her chest at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So here's what we did. We got an ECG. She got a chest X-ray. She got some lab tests. And we did start with a DVT ultrasound. And as results are coming back, the ECG is just sinus tachycardia. Chest X-ray is normal. Labs. So she got a CBC, which just showed mild anemia, which was a known issue for her during her pregnancy. Chemistry was normal. She has a mildly elevated lactic acid at 2.0. A TSH was checked. That was normal. A troponin was negative. Her D-dimer was checked, and it was quite high, actually. It was 1,850. The upper limit of normal where I work is 500. So that's quite high. A COVID swab was done on her. And that takes a little bit of time to come back, but it actually comes back positive. And the DVT ultrasound is done, and that shows no DVT. Yeah, I think this is when you start to have to roll out that discussion of looking for that PE. There's the one prospectively validated study, the modified years criteria. You know, again, it hasn't been restudied, but it did show that in these patients, if you have a risk factor, which she does, PE is one of your biggest diagnoses. And your D-dimer in her is greater than a thousand. Certainly then you would get cross-sectional imaging. So now it's time for us to cross that bridge and to look at what type of study that we can get. I had told you that her chest X-ray is normal. And so that means that VQ is an option, right? You have to start with a normal chest X-ray before VQ is really an option, as well as CT pulmonary angiogram. Yeah, I think this is always an eternal debate as far as what's the better test. There's a lot of trade-offs. Number one, minimizing radiation exposure to the fetus, but also, you know, to the patient herself, especially when it comes to breast radiation, the breast tissue is developing in pregnancy. So there's a lot of different things to consider. I think one other thing that you can think about as far as radiation exposure goes is what's the gestational age of the fetus. So we know that very early on, we worry about organogenesis and radiation in the setting of that leading towards some congenital anomalies. And so early on in pregnancy, and we're talking very early, those are relatively of higher concern. And then, of course, as you sort of go throughout the development in the trimesters, then it switches more from organogenesis to neurocognitive effects. And those can be much more difficult, of course, to assess. And then overall, there is an increased risk of childhood cancers. The best numbers that I have found are about one to 17,000 per one milligray for an increased risk of childhood cancer. When we think about organogenesis and where we look at that cutoff as to where it may cause fetal abnormalities, we're talking like 50 milligray. Okay, so think about one and think about 50. CTPA for fetal exposure is somewhere in the range, and of course, as with anything, these studies vary, but somewhere in the range from 0.03 to 0.066 milligray. At 0.66 or about half that number. You know, the other part of this that we think about is sort of the breast radiation. And so obviously the breast radiation can be up to 20 milligray for CTPA, right? So you're scanning right through the chest. 
Now, if we look at VQ scan, it's much more diagnostic in pregnant patients because they don't have underlying lung disease. And as you mentioned, she had a normal chest X-ray. So that increases the chance that you're going to get a diagnostic VQ scan because of the normal lung architecture. However, there is increased risk of radiation exposure to the fetus because of how the radioactive agents sort of collect down in the bladder and that's how they're eliminated. And obviously the baby is near the bladder. As we all know, for those of us who have been pregnant, you know the baby is very near to the bladder. (laughs) So, but when you look at those, again, numbers vary, but the radiation exposure to the fetus in a VQ scan is 0.32 to 0.74 milligray. So again, under one milligray and certainly not anywhere close to 50. So wait, let me just clarify something. You said that VQ scan is more diagnostic. Do you mean that VQ scan in pregnant patients compared to non-pregnant patients? Or do you mean that VQ scan is more diagnostic than CTPA in pregnant patients? So it's always an interesting debate. Pregnant patients have a higher chance of having a diagnostic VQ scan than, let's say, somebody who's 70 or 80 who maybe has underlying lung disease or something along those lines. But I think the other thing that we need to think about is the fact that CTPA in pregnant patients actually has a lower percentage of diagnostic tests. And that is related to the fact that there's hyperdynamic circulation. So the timing of the contrast is different and you can have a lot of washout of the contrast in the pulmonary arteries. So oftentimes in pregnant patients, you will see something along the lines of limited diagnostic utility, however, no central PE or big sub-segmental PE is identified. Some protocols have been developed for pregnant patients, so it alters the timing of that contrast. But I think as a person ordering it, you can't really think that CTPA is necessarily going to be the panacea of a diagnosis versus a VQ scan. 10 to 12% of these CTPAs can be non-diagnostic in pregnant patients because of these contrast timing issues that I mentioned. So this is actually a really big learning point for me. What you're telling me is that a CTPA, the test that I normally would think of as the gold standard for diagnosing a pulmonary embolism, has a significant miss rate in pregnant patients. That's super concerning to me. I don't think I realized that before, just how inferior of a test this is in pregnant patients compared to non-pregnant patients. I also have to wonder if the PEs that we're missing are truly significant PEs, right? Like it's a non-diagnostic scan, so are we missing something? Maybe, but are those just some small subsegmental PEs that are of minimal clinical consequence? Or are we actually missing something significant here that needs to be intervened upon? Now, I don't know off the top of my head the non-diagnostic rate of VQ scan in pregnancy, but how does that compare? Is it better or worse? Yeah, so I actually uh, pulled up a, a study that looked at a bunch of these different studies and tried to put them together because, as you can imagine, numbers vary widely. However, they put together a bunch of pooled rates and they found that VQ scans were non-diagnostic in this patient population about 14% of the time. And in the same study, CTPA in pregnant patients was non-diagnostic 12% of the time. So we're kind of in the same range, obviously with all of those caveats, meaning you have a normal chest x-ray, et cetera, et cetera. 
And also, we don't know that she has normal lungs. We know her chest x-ray is normal, but how many COVID patients have we seen that their chest x-rays look normal, but for some reason you got a CT and you're like, wow, how did none of that show up on the chest x-ray? So who knows if that would affect the outcome of VQ scan? That was one of our concerns as well. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's a completely unknown and certainly not part of any of the literature that I've read. And, you know, COVID adds a little extra spice to everything. You know, I think one other word that I'll say about VQ scan is, of course, thinking about your resources, who you have performing it, who you have reading it. If somebody hasn't come in and dusted off the protocol of doing a VQ scan in five years, then I would assume that your numbers for the diagnostic utility of that test is going to be much less. And so you may, in that situation, swing towards getting a CTPA. And then also maybe discussing with your radiologist, hey, this is a pregnant patient. Do you have a protocol for contrast timing? So this study that I quoted with that percentage was not adjusted for pregnant patients. So that's a pearl right there. I hope everyone heard that. If you are ordering a CTPA and a pregnant patient, make sure you reach out to your tech or at least put in a comment asking for a protocol for pregnant patients because the timing of that contrast is going to be a little bit different to optimize the read of that scan. And also another thing to think about, if you're going to go down that VQ route, can you? Because you need a nuclear medicine tech to do that scan. And they are not necessarily there all hours of the night and the weekends. So that may not even be an option. And in this case, it was not. It's a difficult call if you even have the luxury of making that call. At our institution, we pretty much go for the CT pulmonary angiogram. That's sort of the agreed upon test of choice. And so that was the plan. And really, to this point, our conversation has been quite academic, but really algorithmic, right? This is sort of the textbook approach. And now we're about to take a turn into reality where patients don't always follow an algorithm. And so here we go. Okay. We go back into the room. Remember, this is a minor. Remember, she doesn't speak English. So with an interpreter, we go back into the room to explain her results and to tell her that the next step is to get a CT scan. We go to have an informed discussion with her about the potential radiation exposure and the risks and benefits of getting this scan. And the patient declines. She does not want to do anything that will put the baby at risk. And we try to give her numbers. We try to put things in perspective, how important this diagnosis is to make. We spend quite a bit of time with her and she is not interested in getting that CT scan. She declines. Her mother is with her and we try speaking with her mother and her mother backs her up and says she doesn't want to get it. We're not going to get it. And that is honestly the reality, real life. Patients don't follow all of our thought patterns and algorithms, and things can be really difficult. Obviously good to have what you did have in the room, which is a translator, and a translator that's not just a parent or a family member. And it it, it can be hard when you feel like you're not communicating that, yes, there is a risk to your baby with radiation, but the ultimate risk is that you have a pulmonary embolus that doesn't get treated and that is fatal potentially to you and therefore very risky to your baby. So then I think you start thinking about alternatives, right? So Mm -hmm. what else can I do to keep her safe 
but also respect her worries and concerns. Did you echo her heart? Yes, just grossly took a quick look and didn't see any major signs of strain. But I will tell you that ultrasound is not my strong suit. And so getting a formal echocardiogram is certainly a possibility to pick up some findings that perhaps my resident and I are not picking up. Yeah, I hear you on that. I am an ultrasound user, but not an expert as many of our colleagues are. And I think that I would proceed the same way. I think uh, other things to do are to maybe speak with her doctor, right? Other people that know her, that could advise her, that could be an ally to you in this therapeutic relationship and speaking with the patient. So these are all great points. What do you do with this difficult situation? Make sure you're addressing what the patient's concerns actually are, which we tried to do. And she told us she's just worried about harm to the baby. So we tried to directly address that and we just weren't really making any progress. We talked about getting a VQ scan because we could pull some strings. We could make some phone calls. Maybe we get a nuke med tech to come in and do the study. She refuses that as well because it also involves radiation. Now, what do we do next? So we went for the ally route. We picked up the phone. We called OB. And their first response when we said, hey, you know, we're worried about a PE and uh, we can't convince her to get the scan. And so we'd like you to come talk to her. And their first response was, well, that's why we sent her to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we asked them, come back down and see if you can talk to her. And let's put some other options on the table here. Here's what we were thinking. Getting an echocardiogram performed by a technician is one option to look for other signs. She's 39 weeks. So we're thinking, could they just deliver her? And then we're also thinking, well, if everyone's really worried about a PE, can we just treat her with some anoxaparin and then they can manage it from there? Just presumptively treat her for what we all think that she's got. We want to be involved in this decision making and we rope them back in to come back down. I agree. You know, I think none of those would you ever do sort of without OB input. So, you know, thinking about I certainly don't know what their thoughts are about inducing labor on somebody who potentially has, a, you know, a pulmonary embolus. I don't know what that looks like. Also, when it comes to low molecular weight heparin, that is the treatment of choice for DVT and PE in pregnant folks. The dosing of that, there's no real agreed upon dosing regimen. And then what are their thoughts on when they stop that, given that she's 39 weeks? And, you know, there's a lot of other extra questions in there that I certainly wouldn't make any sort of decision without an OB input into that. So they come back down and... I don't know, perhaps it was like you said, they had already a therapeutic relationship with their OB and we are new to them. They've never met us before and they are able to convince her to get the CT scan. Thank goodness. Woo. Yeah, I know. This is a tough one. This is making me sweat. So resolution, she gets the CT scan and it's negative. Also, by the way, her lungs look normal. So she has COVID, she's tested positive, but from a pulmonary standpoint, that all looks quite clear. So they observe her, hydrate her, and ultimately she gets discharged a few hours later. Final thoughts. Final thoughts on the case. You know, I think that leading yourself through this, it is really tough, but really working with these patients and going back in the room and talking with them again, laying out options, thinking about alternatives. It's what we do as emergency physicians because 
everybody doesn't follow the book and we're faced with these ethical dilemmas all the time. And, you know, our biggest charge is thinking outside the box and saying, you know, what can I do to keep this patient safe and getting other people involved in the care of this patient? And so from my perspective, you know, everything went right in this case in the fact that everybody was really focused on the patient, her baby and the ultimate safety. And it's good that she didn't have a PE, but I think presented with this scenario time and time again, I would have done exactly the same thing. And I really think that you and your team did an excellent job in taking care of this really complicated patient with a lot of different ethical layers attached. Thank you so much for saying that. That's kind of you. It certainly didn't feel that way in the moment. It felt very stressful, but it's really nice to hear you say that. And to also to just sort of talk through a case that kind of sticks with you and bothers you, right? It's nice to talk through that. So thanks so much for all those pearls. I really learned a lot by working through this case with you. I hope I don't regret saying this, but I'm ready to dive into some diarrhea. <laughs> I have a bad case of diarrhea. I have a bad case of diarrhea. Well, this is going to be a tour de force on C. diff. And at the end of this, Brit, when people think C. diff, they're going to think Brit Long. That is my oh, goal no. with this segment. <laughs> Brit Long. So, you know, we haven't actually talked about C. diff in a while. And I know you know this, but I actually got my start on MRAP way back in September 2008, talking about C. diff diarrhea with my co-chief resident, Bill Paolo and Mel. And Bill doesn't mind me telling everybody that he had an epic case of C. diff that I was uh, more involved in than I'd like to say. <laughs> way more information that I need to know about Bill and his C. diff. But fortunately, it's been 14 plus years. Bill is still in remission, so we're very happy about that. And Jess and Larissa May did chat about antibiotic stewardship. They touched on C. diff back in June 2021, but we really want to hone in on this diagnosis so that we catch it in the emergency department. So Britt, what is the typical presentation that we should start thinking about C. diff in our patients presenting to the ED? One of the big things is C. diff's not an uncommon disease. If you work long enough, you're going to see it at some point. Around 10% of patients who come into the ED with diarrhea are going to be diagnosed with C. diff infection, and it's now replaced MRSA as the most common hospital-acquired infection in the U.S., so it's actually probably more common than we think. Now, there are a couple different ways C. diff can present. There's an asymptomatic carrier form. We really don't care too much about that one. There's a non-severe form with diarrhea. There's a severe form with some laboratory abnormalities, some worse diarrhea, a fulminate form with toxic megacolon, and then finally, recurrent disease. The most common presentation by far is going to be that non-severe form with diffuse, watery diarrhea. Technically, it's supposed to be at least three watery stools in a 24-hour period, and that comes from the IDSA. This isn't your run-of-the-mill GI illness with diarrhea that is going to last for a couple of days, and then it just gets better. The diarrhea with C. diff is going to be diffuse, it can last weeks, even months. It's not going to get better. Patients can also have even mucus or occult blood within the diarrhea. Abdominal pain is pretty common. This is usually generalized. It's going to be crampy. Focal pain is not as common, and you should think about another condition if that patient has severe focal tenderness. 
We think of this as a diarrheal illness, but about 30% of cases are going to have nausea and vomiting. There might even be a low-grade fever in around 15% of cases. Now, the other key part of this disease is the risk factors. Jess Mason and Larissa May both touched on antibiotics as one risk factor for C. diff. I like to think about this as two groups for these risk factors. There's going to be an exposure to C. diff, and then there's also increased susceptibility. The exposure risks focus on contact with a contaminated individual or some form of healthcare setting like the hospital. Even a single hospital night can increase the risk of C. diff, which is crazy. The susceptibility risks are those factors like recent antibiotic use. There are a couple other important risk factors here, though. The first one is going to be inflammatory bowel disease. These patients have a much higher rate of C. diff. Some other ones are HIV, tube feedings, malnutrition, obesity. Age is very important. The risk is five times higher in those older than 65 years. And then the final major one is proton pump inhibitor use or PPI use. The problem with a lot of the data concerning the use of PPIs is that much of it is based on observational data and there's some confounders, so it's not a clear association. A lot of important information in there, Britt, and I think it's really hard for us to cling on to this diagnosis in the emergency department unless we're kind of set up for it. So if you have a patient who comes in and they say, I've got a history of C. diff, I have watery diarrhea for the last couple of days, I think it's C. diff again. We kind of have an idea of how to manage that patient. And I guess the question that I want to ask is, do I need to wait and get a test on that patient before treating them? Or can I just say empirically, this is what you got. I'm going to start you on treatment right away. Yeah, that's such a great question. But per the guidelines, no empiric therapy without testing. You need to confirm the diagnosis before you start treatment. The IDSA recommends testing if a patient comes in with three or more unformed stools in a 24-hour period. Now, if you think about all the patients you see with diarrhea, that's probably going to result in some over-testing. I'm thinking about testing if that patient has diarrhea that's been lasting days, there are risk factors, they look unwell, there's not another explanation. The testing is going to come down to what your hospital has available. The IDSA guidelines recommend using a two- or a three-step algorithm based on your lab capabilities. There are two broad classes of tests that we need to know for the ED. The first class focuses on detecting the organism itself. The second class is going to detect the toxins that are produced by the organism. The best test for detecting the organism is going to be a nucleic acid amplification test. These detect the toxin genes. This is usually going to be a PCR. It's very sensitive, but it can't differentiate between an active infection from that patient who was just colonized. That second class of testing focuses on detecting the toxin. That's going to be with a toxin amino assay. This has a very high specificity. It's around 99%. So if the toxic amino assay is positive, that patient's infected. The problem with this assay is that sensitivity is not 100%. It ranges anywhere between 50 to 88%. Most algorithms are going to combine these different tests. An example would be to start with that PCR. If the PCR is negative, you're done. You can rule out the disease. If it's positive, the next test would be that toxin testing. If this is positive, treat the patient. If it's negative, that patient's probably a carrier. You don't need antibiotics. There is one caveat to this for our listeners. If that patient is immunocompromised and that PCR is positive, they'll probably need treatment, but you'll want to speak with your ID folks on this one. 
Now, the major takeaway is you need to check your institution guidelines. You may have both tests. You may only have one test. The PCR is sensitive for C. diff, but it isn't specific for infection. The toxin amino assay is specific, but it can't exclude the disease if it's negative. And because of all the focus on C. diff over the last couple of decades, I think most institutions do have a protocol for testing. It may not be one that we're familiar with in the emergency department, but there's going to be some kind of a protocol for all of the inpatients who then develop diarrhea and they have to start getting tests and figure out who to treat. I think one of the keys in there, Britt, is really don't treat empirically. Again, this is an issue of antibiotic stewardship. And coming back to that antibiotic issue, because we kind of skated over that, I think we need to come back to it. We know that that is a major risk factor. The patient is presenting with new onset of multiple loose stools in 24 hours, and they have a recent use of antibiotic. We are going to be suspicious of C. diff. We're going to get that testing done. But are there specific antibiotics that we have to be more worried about? And I guess the flip side of that, are there specific antibiotics that you're like, no, 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 that one doesn't cause C. diff. I don't have to worry about that one at all. Yeah, antibiotics cause issues for a couple reasons. The first reason is that they disrupt the normal gut microbiome. What C. diff does is in antibiotics, that enables C. diff seeding in a patient who has just been exposed to the organism. The other issue is that antibiotics allow any pre-existing dormant spores to actually germinate. Now, the big culprits are going to be clindamycin and fluoroquinolones. Clindamycin has an odds ratio of up to 32 for C. diff infection. For fluoroquinolones, it's about 17 or 16.7, so pretty significant. Some other antibiotics are going to be third and fourth generation cephalosporins, beta-lactams and beta-lactamase inhibitors, and some carbapenems, but they're nowhere near as high of odds ratios as clindamycin and fluoroquinolones. Now, most of these antibiotic exposures are going to be between 7 to 10 days, but the exposure could be even a single dose, and the patient may have even received the antibiotic three months before they come in with symptoms, which is crazy. We've been focusing on the antibiotics, but about 40% of infections won't have a history of recent antibiotic use, and up to 18% may not have any history of a recent healthcare exposure. So you still need to keep this disease on your radar in that patient with GI symptoms, especially the diarrhea, and keep in mind those other risk factors like immunocompromise and malnutrition. And I think the idea of the patient coming in with maybe a week's or 10 days worth of diarrhea should clue us in a little bit more to C. diff. Again, you mentioned the prior antibiotic use, if they've had contact with healthcare, if they've got that immunosuppression, all of those things are things that we need to kind of take into account. And because we're not rushing to treat, but instead we're taking a step back and saying, let's start with testing, it kind of empowers us to say we can cast our net a little bit broader so that we're catching these cases instead of missing them. But if the patient comes in with a day or two of diarrhea, they look pretty well, they're not immunocompromised, I'm not usually thinking C. diff, I'm not usually moving in that direction because there are so many other things that cause diarrhea that should be on our list. What we've really covered at this point is those mild cases uh, of C. diff or the mild cases of diarrhea where we have to be worried about C. diff. But some of these patients come in with really severe disease. And while it might be easier for us to remember to think about C. diff, we don't always go in that direction with the severe cases. And we still need to really know what medications to start how to make the diagnosis in these patients. So let's talk about the more severe presentations. Severe infection includes those patients with a white blood cell count over 15,000 or a creatinine of over 1.5. They're going to have more severe pain and distension. They may have hypovolemia on your exam. There's going to be low albumin. They may even have an elevated lactate. Fulminant C. diff infection is a deadly form. 
This occurs in around 3% of cases. These patients can be in shock. They may need vasopressors. Up to 20% will help ileus. Toxic megacolon is one of the big complications of the fulminate form. This is going to present with severe peritonitis and distension. On imaging, we're going to see significantly dilated large bowel. Now, I'm talking 6 centimeters for the colon and about 12 centimeters for the cecum. Basically, if you have a sick patient with dilated colon on imaging, that's toxic megacolon. Britt, you know emergency physicians love a good scoring system. Are there <laughs> scoring systems for C. diff that we can use to assess how sick that patient actually is? There are several scores. There's the Atlas scoring system and then some other factors based on one study. If you're interested in looking at these, the Corpendium chapter does a great job laying these out. Honestly, these scores just try to assign points or objectify what we're already doing at the bedside. The easiest way is to just look at that patient in front of you and then obtain some straightforward labs, maybe some imaging. If the patient's sick, they're unstable, they have a very high wet blood cell count, if you're finding an organ injury or a high lactate, that's a more severe form. But you mentioned some of the things that we're going to find on imaging. And obviously, we know that the patient with mild C. diff doesn't need any imaging. The sicker the patient is, the more likely we're going to get imaging. When we see those results, when we see the enlarged colon or the enlarged cecum, does that tell us that we have now bridged over into surgical management? I need a surgical consultation for that patient. Or is the therapy not really going to differ between what we see on the imaging? I think CT does play an important role here, especially if you see those complications. You know, if you're finding toxic megacolon, that is definitely a red flag. And those patients might end up needing surgery. So you'll need to speak with your surgeons. You'll also need to involve your GI specialists early. CT definitely plays a role. It's not really well delineated in the guidelines. They kind of leave it open and say, maybe those patients with severe or complicated forms should receive imaging. Basically, if that patient's sick, they're unwell, they're older, they have evidence of severe disease, or you're concerned about another condition, then obtain a CT scan. It makes a lot of sense. And I think the sicker the patient is, the more likely we're going to get that imaging to find out if they have surgical pathology or surgical complication that's going to need the surgical involvement. And then again, the sizes really are important. The size of the colon, the size of the cecum, it's important for us to know. Treatment. From there, let's get into treatment, because I think we remember that the old standby if you have C. diff, go ahead and give them some metronidazole. That's going to be fine for most patients. But is that really fine? I think that the resistance patterns have changed. There's been different recommendations. So what should be our first-line medication for a patient with mild C. diff or with severe C. diff? And does it differ if this is a recurrence of that C. diff? You hit on so many great points there. So if you have a confirmed positive case, the first step is to stop any unnecessary antibiotic. You're right in that the first-line treatment used to be metronidazole, but that's no longer the case because there's been increasing resistance. Now the first line is fidaxomycin per the 2018 IDSA guidelines. These recommendations come from two RCTs with over 1,100 patients. Fidaxomycin is very effective, but it's expensive and it's not going to be available in all centers. The alternative for fidaxomycin is going to be oral vancomycin. It's also very effective. So again, Start with fidaxomycin or oral vancomycin. If these aren't available, then you can use metronidazole for that initial treatment. The duration of treatment for those patients with that non-severe form is going to be 10 days. That's going to adequately treat the infection in most patients. Now, we haven't talked too much about recurrent disease. That's an infection where the patient's been treated, 
they improve, and then the symptoms reappear two to eight weeks after therapy. There are more limited data when it comes to treating this form. The IDSA guidelines recommend that a first recurrence can be treated with fidaxomycin. If that's not available, then you can use oral vancomycin followed by a tapered and a pulsed regimen. If the patient has had two or more recurrences, they're not improving with the antibiotics, then the next step is going to be fecal transplant. This has success rates that approach 90%, so it's pretty effective. Fecal transplant. Who gives a crap? Josh and Bill, go ahead and uh, talk about as much as you want about fecal transplant. Fecal transplant. Who gives a crap? Hunter Johnson. That's who gives a crap. You know, we can't mention a fecal transplant without also mentioning Dr. Hunter Johnson, a pathologist who currently practices in Atlanta, who, when he was a resident, donated his stool to a bunch of patients suffering from C. diff. He had some healthy shit. So for most patients, if you have access, fidaxomycin is going to be your first line. If that's too expensive, if you don't have it available, oral vancomycin is your next line. And then metronidazole is going to kind of be a fallback in the patient who maybe can't afford anything else. Or if you don't have it available, we really want to reserve the metronidazole for those patients who we can get close follow-up to make sure that they are improving. And also, again, we want to give the metronidazole maybe to those patients who have milder disease. The patients who are a little bit worse off, we really want to get vancomycin and fidaxomycin. But these are still all the mild cases, Britt. We haven't really talked about what do we do with that patient with the severe C. diff or the fulminant C. diff, because I'm guessing that the antibiotic regimen is slightly different. This is the patient who's going to die quickly. We need to resuscitate these patients, get some very specific antibiotics on board early, and we need to speak with our surgical and GI colleagues. These patients with severe or fulminant colitis, they're going to be significantly dehydrated. They're going to need IV fluids. They may need vasopressors. You know, you know how to take care of those patients. I'm going to focus on the antibiotics. The two antibiotics you need to remember are vancomycin and metronidazole. This is going to be a bit different than your normal vancomycin that we use for conditions like cellulitis or pneumonia. For fulminant colitis, vancomycin is administered orally or by nasal gastric tube. And if you have a really sick patient, you should also provide it rectally. The dose is 500 milligrams four times per day via the oral route, and then for the rectal dosing, it's 500 milligrams, mix in 100 milliliters of normal saline every six hours as a retention enema. The temptation here is going to be to not give that rectal administration of the vancomycin, but this is really important. We need to do this in the ED. The other antibiotic will be IV metronidazole, 500 milligrams, and that's going to be with the oral and rectal vancomycin. The final key component here is going to be consultation. If you're concerned about that patient with severe colitis and definitely the fulminant form, there's evidence of perforation, you have a patient with peritonitis or septic shock, you need to speak with your surgical colleagues early. These patients might need total abdominal colectomy, or they may need some other procedure like a diverting loop ileostomy. You also need to speak with GI. They can perform an endoscopic stool transplant, which might be able to avoid surgery. So again, speak with your surgical colleagues and your GI specialist early in these cases. Treatment of the severe and the fulminant cases is a little bit more complicated. The vancomycin really needs to be given orally, like we were doing for the more mild cases. But in addition to that, we need the rectal retention enema as well in order to really get ahead of this. And then we're going to give the metronidazole IV. So it's really two different antibiotics, but three different routes that we have to give it in order to effectively take care of that patient and then get those consultants on board to make sure that there aren't other things that that patient is going to need in terms of surgery or procedurally in order to get better. Summary. I think with this piece, Britt, we've got everything that we need to know 
to take care of C. diff. Of course, people can pop over to the core Pendium chapter to see really all of the details of everything we talked about here. But the big things to me is that, of course, we have to be considering C. diff as the cause of the patient's diarrhea, or else we're never going to make the diagnosis. And really, we should be looking for it in patients with significant risk factors, things like prior antibiotic use, contact with the healthcare system, immunocompromise, as well as a little bit more prolonged course of diarrhea. So the patient who comes in with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea for two days or so, who looks pretty good and they're not tender, we don't need to jump to C. diff testing. But if they come in with a week or 10 days of diarrhea, there's nothing else that could be causing that. We really do need to think about C. diff and send off the assays in order to make that diagnosis. Look at your hospital to see what you have in terms of testing. And if you have a protocol already in place to do that testing, remembering that we're not going to be treating people empirically for C. diff, but instead we're going to drive that treatment based on the results of the test, whether that be that nucleic amplification test. And if we're going to follow that with a specific toxin assay, we need to know exactly what that protocol is and then which patients to get started on that treatment. For the mild cases, they can go home with something like oral vancomycin or oral fidaxomycin. But for the more severe cases, of course, we're going to bring them in. We're going to get imaging to see whether they have a surgical pathology that needs to be corrected. And then we're going to give them that vancomycin orally, the vancomycin rectally, and the IV metronidazole in order to get ahead of that disease. And of course, with those severe cases, we're going to resuscitate them knowing these patients can be extremely sick and they can go south very quickly. Britt, thanks for the great overview of everything we need to know with C. diff. Of course, we'll drop some links in the show notes for people to check out. Swami, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey there, Dr. J. The good bacteria have left my colon. Please send me your poop today to get my microbiome a rock and roll. Let me give you a little bit of advice. All right. Don't take crap from nobody. Right. From nobody. Except if it's from Hunter Johnson. Right. Except if it's from him. Because that will probably save your life. Well, I'll take crap from Hunter Johnson anything. Hey there, Dr. J. The good bacteria have left my colon. Please send me your poop today to get my microbiome a rock and roll. Fecal transplant Who gives a crap. Exactly. To think you could save lives just by spreading your poop around. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. You do look tougher, and I'm sure your meth patients appreciate it. Scars are like tattoos with better stories, is what I've been told. Smackdown. Eileen Claudius, Al Sacchetti, and Jeff Sidon, fresh off of another Smackdown here to dive into how management of the unvaccinated kid differs from management of the vaccinated kid. Kid comes in with a fever. They look fantastic. You're ready to hit the discharge button before you even write your note. And then it comes up that the parent has declined vaccinations or maybe just not gotten them. What do we do? Jeff and I are from different generations, and I think that plays into it. A couple of things to consider. One is, where's the kid coming from? If they come from a community with a particularly low vaccination rate, my hackles go up a little bit more. Either way, I came from the era where there were no Haemophilus influenza B vaccines and strep pneumonia vaccines, and we had a very strict protocol for these kids. And at the time, I always thought it was stupid, but it was the protocol we used, which was these kids got a CBC. If the white count was over 15,000, they had blood cultures drawn, they were administered a dose of ceftrioxone, they were sent home, they came back the next day, cultures were checked, they were given another dose, sent home, and then came back the third day. If nothing grew out by then, they were considered fine. I always thought that was overkill, but we had kids that would grow out these nasty, nasty bugs. They grow out the strep, they grow out the um, homophilus. 
many times the antibiotics didn't help and they still came back more abundant and septic and whatnot, but it instilled a certain amount of fear in me. So when I get the kids that are in a susceptible age, under two, who aren't vaccinated, I get blood cultures on them. The mother usually objects. And I said, well, if you vaccinated the kid, I wouldn't have to be sticking them, number one. It's a little bit punitive for you because I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the poor kid's the one that suffers. But yeah, I get the blood cultures, get the CBC. If the CBC is over 15,000, it doesn't help for hemophilus. And it doesn't, doesn't help for Neisseria because they tend not to give you an elevated white blood cell count. But it does help with the strep pneumonia. They do tend to get an elevated white blood cell count. If it's over that, I will give them a dose of medicine. When I draw the blood cultures, I put the catheter in them anyway, so they can get a dose of rosephid. It's no big deal. But then at least I'm sure that they got the antibiotics and, and I follow them. I mean, we frequently follow our kids anyway because their access to pediatrics is not that great. But I'm conservative about that. I'm just not real comfortable blowing these kids off as, yeah, you know, you, you look like every other kid I've ever seen with a viral syndrome. So Al, your algorithm is blood cultures and CBC. If the white count is above 15,000, you give the ceftriaxone? Yep. So Al, I think it's interesting. I think protocols are very valuable when they're driven by evidence. And right now I feel like I've entered a time machine and I'm back in 1986 with you. But unfortunately, the data has changed. I think you quoted some studies about occult bacteremia and the utility of oral antibiotics, IV antibiotics. I think what you're forgetting is that the data also said that with no antibiotics, the risk of occult bacteremia was extraordinarily low. And I believe the one you're referring to is by Libby Alpern, published just before pneumococcal vaccines were even introduced. It was really the post-Hib vaccine, but pre-Prevnar vaccine, where the risk of occult bacteremia was so extraordinarily low in all comers, they didn't stratify based on immunization status or not, that expectant antibiotics were no longer recommended in well-appearing children who just came in with fever. 95% of kids who have blood cultures and get called back tomorrow when it turns positive, 95% of them on repeat culture, regardless of whether they got any antibiotics, will have negative cultures. So even most occult bacteremia is spontaneously resolved. Obviously, there's no always or no nevers in medicine. So I absolutely agree with you that if you're dealing with a very particular community in which the child is not surrounded by vaccinated individuals, there is increased risk. And it probably is wise to exercise some degree of caution with them. But I really am strenuously opposed to the idea that we should put any under-vaccinated or unvaccinated child into this bin where they're now subjected to blood cultures in which the rate of contamination is several fold higher than the rate of real pathology and the risk of, of antibiotics, not just for that individual, but the risk for the community. To me, that's just, it's, it's uncalled for. The evidence doesn't really support it. And I think we need to be really careful about hearkening back to the very real fears that you experienced when the risk of invasive bacterial disease was much, much higher in the 80s and before that. You're right. The risk is relatively low, but the risk of missing it was so high back then that you didn't have a choice. The one thing I hate to say it, but I agree with you, is if you look at the amount of homophilus influenza in the community in general, it's very, very low. Not the same thing with the um, the strep. Unfortunately, the strep is the one where you can see some value in getting a CBC on these people. If you go back to our original SmackDown, where we looked at the protocols for the neonates and whatnot, once you got up to the older age groups, you have to have a different approach to that child. I think we really need to be careful, Al, about what the reasoning is behind treating a six or seven week old differently than a 18 month old is. It's not because at eight weeks they magically get that first set of vaccines and now they're fully vaccinated, as you say. They're still not fully vaccinated. In fact, no one knows exactly when they're fully vaccinated. Most experts 
would indicate that certainly not before getting two of the series, so at least after four months of age. And, you know, obviously the vaccine schedule exists for a reason. You get optimal protection probably after three sets of vaccines, so after the six-month visit. So, you know, the reason a neonate is treated differently is not purely, in fact, not even mostly because of their vaccination status. It's because of their immunological status. Jeff, you've pretty much painted Al as sitting around in a mullet listening to Madonna while he plays with a Care Bear in terms of the era in which he is practicing. No wonder you're the star of our show. So what exactly is it that you do? Do you treat these kids any different than a child who's had two or three vaccinations? In a well-appearing child with a normal exam and simply fever as their presenting sign or symptom, I really don't treat them any differently, regardless of immunization status. Again, there are going to be occasional exceptions when someone comes from a pocket of the community where there is no vaccination or there's been a recent outbreak of a particular illness. But outside of that, I really don't put all that much weight in their under immunization status when they present to the emergency department with fever in a well-appearing child. How do you do your follow-up on these kids who you're basing their disposition on, you know, a good physical examination, and a good history? Do you call them back? Do you have them come back for a recheck or do you just kind of turn them loose? It varies, Alan. I think I use my clinical judgment just like I would with any child, regardless of immunization status. If I have some concerns, either because of the history, because of the social system around them and support system around them, sometimes I will call, sometimes I will have them come back. Most of the time, I will ask them or advise them to follow up with their regular pediatrician or family practitioner within the next 24 hours. And if they can't, I tell them they should come back to the emergency department. What's very interesting here is we've got a really biphasic department right now where we've got a bunch of young people, a couple years, one, two years out of their residencies, and a handful of us old docs left wandering around here. And at one point, we were doing a study on LPs, but almost all the LPs came from the old gang, not the youngsters. And usually that's the opposite. Usually see the youngsters are getting more diagnostic tests. And when we looked at it, it was, yeah, you know what? The old people were all the ones who just remember the kid that went home that came back more abundant dead. And so they're way more conservative in terms of their diagnostic studies and in terms of their therapeutic management. And they do tend to settle back on that old protocol, get the CBC, get the blood cultures, and then act on that. Well, I have no doubt that that's the reality, Al. I think what I'm saying is that it's not data-driven, it's not evidence-based, and there's really no foundation for it in this current day and age. The idea that a CBC is a helpful risk stratification tool is extraordinarily outdated, and that's been demonstrated in many different disease processes, but certainly in the realm of occult bacteremia and the risk of such. I think it was probably about 20 years ago now, there was an excellent cost-effectiveness analysis study that was published, I think, by the folks up at Harvard, looking at different pretest probabilities or different incidences of occult bacteremia, and at what point diagnostic testing becomes no longer a reasonable thing to do. And what they concluded was that at an occult bacteremia rate less than 1%, no longer should diagnostic testing be used to stratify risk and determine management. And that clinical judgment becomes the most cost-effective and really overall clinically effective tool for doing so. And right now, our occult bacteremia rate is somewhere under 0.5%. If you look at some of the most recent studies post-PCV13 vaccine in 2010, I think most of the data comes out of Israel. But if you look at even some of the CDC or MMWR data, the rate of occult bacteremia has just been driven so close to zero, including for pneumococcal disease, that we really should not be utilizing diagnostic testing in order to help us augment our clinical judgment for these kids. 
But if you're looking at the population, that's a population that includes predominantly immunized children. That's not in a population of just unimmunized children. The interesting thing is, in this era where the incidence of homophilus influenza bacteria in the community is extremely low, and then the um, incidence of strep pneumonia and it hasn't dropped it to zero. I and mean, we still see a lot of strep pneumonia in, in the adults and whatnot, but is, is lower. When you include those people, absolutely, that's great. But no one's done the study where they take that population out and look only at the unvaccinated kids. And until you see that study with only the unvaccinated kids, I don't think anybody's got good data on how to manage these children. Yeah, Jeff, you young rebel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think that that's an important point, Al, but I think that the question really is not, are they at increased risk of invasive disease from these bacteria, which I think the answer undoubtedly is yes. That's why we advocate for universal vaccination, because we know that they work to drive down risk. The question is, do these children present with occult diseases? Do they present looking well and smiling at you? And just because they're not vaccinated, that means you have to treat them as though they have a ticking time bomb inside them in the form of a pneumococcal bacterium. And I think the answer to that is really no. And that's a combination of evidence, as you described, which is population-based, but also our experience. I mean, look at the entire under-immunized population of infants between, say, two and six months of age, and look at all of our toddlers who come in with fevers every single day. We're not seeing, even when they're not vaccinated, we're just not seeing that pan out that they're still at this tremendous risk for occult disease processes. When they come in and they are sick and they're unimmunized, well, that's a good explanation for why they got sick in the first place. But it doesn't change the way they're presenting to us in the emergency department. It doesn't affect our ability to clinically assess them at that age. But the thing is the following then. We have seen the kid that came in that was smiling, that looked absolutely fine, that had absolutely no indication at all that they were a ticking time bomb and they did blow up. So that I think is the big difference. If you grow up in the era of sick kids look sick and well kids look well, you're much more comfortable saying, yeah, I don't think I need to do anything with this. But if you grew up in the era where sick kids looked well, the last thing you'd ever wanted to hear when you walked into your shift was remember that kid. You can't be as glib about saying, yeah, if the kid doesn't look sick, I'm not worried about him. I think the reality is that despite the history of pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine, this era is very different than it was 30 or 40 years ago. I'm picturing Jeff's emergency department as being this kumbaya, like everybody looks fantastic, families are leaving hand in hand. And Al's emergency department, children are exploding left, right, and center. You're in there doing the discharge paperwork and boom, spontaneous combustion. It's such an interesting visual image that each of you give differently. That's exactly right, as as a matter of fact. (laughs) You know, I think obviously this is a conundrum for providers because we don't have the data. And you're right, Jeff. I mean, data-driven medicine is the way to go. Al, you've got a ton of experience. And this is an area where for a long time we've had a paucity of data. And I actually was thinking it would be fantastic with COVID and everybody not getting to their pediatrician to get vaccinated to do this study. But fortunately, somebody named Jennifer Dunnick scooped me on this one. And there was an interesting study published in 2021 looking at the unvaccinated population and not what you were talking about, Al. Not sort of the quintessential, let's look at all of these blood cultures and unvaccinated kids well-appearing, ill-appearing. It was a retrospective study, so obviously with the limitations of who they sent blood cultures on. And they did have good record keeping. So they excluded children that did have known immunodeficiencies, central lines, cancer, on chemo, that sort of thing. 
With all of these exclusions, they had 4,742 encounters left in kids two months to 36 months, and they had an overall bacteremia rate of 1.5%. There was no significant difference in the kids who were fully vaccinated, under-vaccinated, or not vaccinated. And even though this came from a county, and I think this is very relevant, with a very high vaccination rate, over 95% in their school-age children, in this particular study, the blood cultures came from a number of children that were unvaccinated. 719 of the blood cultures came from unvaccinated children, and another 6.6% came from under-vaccinated children. And what they found in the un- and under-vaccinated children was a 1.3% bacteremia rate versus the 1.5% in the sample in general. Five strep pneumo-positive blood cultures were all in fully vaccinated children, meaning they'd had at least three vaccines. The other thing that I thought was fascinating is their number one and number two bacteria were Staph aureus and E. coli. Maybe we need to worry a little bit more about all the kids rather than just the kids that are under-vaccinated. We just had a five-month-old, and the kid grew out group B strep out of the uh, the spinal tap. But the kid was seen two days before. Everything looked great on the kid. The kid had, had all their vaccines and stuff. So the take-home here is you do get surprised, and you get surprised with weird bacteria. We get surprised by the run-of-the-mill bacteria. I've had, within the last couple of years, a fully vaccinated 10 or 11-month-old who came back strep pneumo positive, both from blood and from spinal fluid. They looked well a couple of days earlier and then came back sicker. It does happen. But again, we have to be very careful about applying that anecdote to an entire population of patients when the interventions that you're describing are not without risks in and of themselves. Summary. So it sounds like we're pretty mixed on this. Obviously, for the ill-appearing kid, that's a different story. But for the well-appearing febrile child with incomplete or absent vaccinations, Al is doing the blood culture, the CBC, possibly the prophylactic antibiotics, and very, very close follow-up. Jeff is treating them just like the regular population. And, well, I'm typically doing a punitive blood culture with a phone call if it comes positive and a lecture on vaccinations, but that's just me. Atrial fibrillation is the most common dysrhythmia we see in the emergency department, with the exception, of course, of sinus tachycardia. And we've recently covered a number of important topics around rhythm and rate control. One thing we haven't discussed as much, or at least had an explicit discussion on, is the risks of conversion. We're going to remedy that situation today by sitting down with Dr. Josh Boucher. Josh, it is great to have you back on. Thanks, Swami. Uh, looking forward to talking about this safe and effective intervention. Josh Boucher. And I think right there, we know where your bias leans. You are going to apply <laughs> this to the correct group of patients. You're not afraid of converting them, which is great. But there are some fears that people have. Some of them are legitimate fears. And I think we have to really take those on. So I think the big one the elephant in the room, is that I'm going to convert this patient, I'm going to flip a clot, and I'm going to cause a stroke. Yeah. So this is, you know, talked about all the time. And this is one of, you know, the biggest risks that people talk about is the risk of stroke. So just to clarify, to begin with, the risk of stroke with AFib is not related to cardioversion or converting from AFib to normal sinus. It's just related to having atrial fibrillation itself. So Patients that we see with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation convert back and forth all the time, regardless of whether they're not they're in the hospital setting. 
and they're not throwing a clot every single time they convert between a fib and sinus. So it's really the year-long risk of stroke that we're worried about, not the stroke immediately related to converting back and forth. So if you look at the Ian Steele studies from Canada, and correct me if I'm wrong, they use the anticoagulated patients or their onset less than 48 hours, the risk of stroke is pretty close to 0% at 30-day follow-up for the patients that they've converted either chemically or electrically in the department back to sinus. So when we're looking at that data, that's pretty safe to assume if they're anticoagulated and you know they're taking their medicine or the onset is less than 48 hours and they're not anticoagulated, we can safely proceed with cardioversion. I agree with how you've interpreted that data. And we had Claire Atzema on a while back talking about how we can risk stratify these patients and using all of this data together. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes for people to check out that episode. When we look at this group of patients who has atrial fibrillation, they get converted, they go home, and that very small percentage of patients who do have a stroke, when we look at the litigation, do we have a real grasp of how common it is for an emergency physician to actually have a lawsuit with the issue of stroke after atrial fibrillation conversion? So I did a literature search. I really couldn't find any peer-reviewed literature on the risk of litigation in terms of cardioversion for AFib. There's plenty of risks with, and from, from what I've read about not anticoagulating patients who meet you know the CHADS-2-VASC uh, scores, but nothing regards to cardioversion itself. But in general, you know, you have to discuss the risks and benefits with the patient, document that discussion you have, and of course, we should always be nice to everyone. And it sounds like we really should be framing that risk-benefit discussion as being in atrial fibrillation increases your risk of having a stroke. That risk is not necessarily increased by the fact that I'm doing a cardioversion today. Correct. It's not, like I said, it's not the cardioversion, it's the fact that they have AFib. That is why they are at risk. There are some other complications that I think are important as well. One complication that is tied to the electricity itself that we're giving is that we can cause the patient to go into asystole. How common is that? How much do we have to worry about that? Oh, this is a great question. So theoretically, there's a risk that they can go into asystole. They can have some Brady dysrhythmias, but also theoretically, magnesium, lidocaine, and beta blockers work for acute MI and TPA works for stroke. <laughs> so when we're looking at if they're actually at risk here, there's been a handful of case reports of asystole. And I've looked at two or three, and one of them actually had a patient who was on digoxin and sotolol and several psychiatric medications. And we know all of those really interfere with conduction. Uh, so I'm going to say it might have been related to that. The other couple of complications, these are actually looked at in a study by Gromberg et al., and it was a systematic review of a bunch of patients looking at all the studies retrospectively looking at these specific complications like bradycardia, asystole, and the chance of any of these transient arrhythmias were basically between 0.2 and 1.1%, depending on the, the study that they were reviewing. So these are all extremely rare and mostly transient with no side effects for the patient. Again, I think that's really important to know. And if you are syncing your cardioversion properly, not causing that R on T phenomena, you shouldn't see some of these other lethal dysrhythmias that we worry about. And there is a little bit of having to do this carefully, right? We're not saying to just willy-nilly throw electricity at people, but if you're doing it appropriately, you really shouldn't run into any of those situations. I've converted a bunch of patients with atrial fibrillation. I've never had any kind of a dysrhythmia afterwards. 
But one of the things that we do see are complications with procedural sedation. We always think about the complications of procedural sedation, specifically with hemodynamics and respiratory status. How much do we have to worry about that specifically in conversion of a patient with atrial fibrillation? Well, I've got great news. All of the side effects of sedation are things we're great at treating, allergy, apnea, and cardiac arrest. So it's not (laughs) like we don't know what we're doing when that happens. But I will say one caveat, the two biggest times at risk during procedural sedation, and especially when I teach the residents, are immediately after induction and then immediately after the procedure. So if you've just cardioverted them, make sure you keep an eye on your, you know, if you're entitled CO2, if you're using it, or at least, you know, you're watching the patient to make sure that they start spontaneously breathing after the cardioversion. Josh, we didn't plan this out in advance, but I just want to ask you, what are your go-to procedural sedation medications for one of these conversions? Well, obviously the go-to procedural sedation for anyone, for anything, any reason on earth is ketamine. Ketamine. (laughs) However, (laughs) I do actually use Atomidate frequently for this specific procedural sedation because, you know, in general, if you shock them a couple of times, maybe three at most, if they're not going to convert after a third shock, they're probably not going to convert electrically. So you want something that's relatively quick. So Atomidate gives you that good eight to 10 minutes of sedation. I love Atomidate as well for this indication. Obviously, using something like fentanyl for your pain control here is great. I haven't ventured into it, but we recently discussed the use of nitrous oxide with Alexis LaPietra, and I do have some faculty members who have used nitrous for conversion, something that I definitely want to try the next time that I have the opportunity. But Atomidate and fentanyl are my go-to, very similar to your approach as well. Summary. What we have here in this nice short little segment is really reassuring us that there's not a lot of complications of converting patients with atrial fibrillation that we need to be super worried about. And so if you have the patient who is appropriate and you laid it out as less than 48 hours or they're on anticoagulation and they're on proper anticoagulation, we probably can offer cardioversion for atrial fibrillation as a possible treatment pathway, whether that be with medications or with electricity If it's going to be with electricity, just be careful with your procedural sedation, remembering that you still have to worry about all of the side effects, all of the possible harms associated with procedural sedation. So do full monitoring, end tidal CO2, pulse ox, make sure that there's multiple providers in the room, including your nurse, to make sure that you are monitoring that patient closely. And I think if we do all those things, we're really not going to run into a lot of problems. That's exactly correct. And this is super safe. Patients love being able to go home. You're not trying multiple medications. And although some people are a little bit afraid of being sedated and having their, quote, heart shocked (laughs) when you have a good conversation with them, most of those fears are alleviated. All right, Josh, thanks so much for clearing all of this up with us. This is a very nice companion piece to our other talks on atrial fibrillation. And again, we'll drop all the links for all of those in the show notes so you can kind of put all of your education together. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Stuart, I have a case that I want to tell you about. Can I walk through this case with you? How could I say no? How could I say no to that (laughs) offer? I knew that you would say that. So I wanted to bring you this case in particular. I was working a shift recently with one of my excellent senior residents, Addie Boone. And we have a 55-year-old woman. She has never been to our emergency department before that we know of. We have no record of her in our emergency department. And she gets brought in due to bizarre behavior. Okay, so EMS basically says 
She's oriented, but when they arrive at the scene, she's sort of running around, acting kind of crazy. She's shouting, she's yelling at people. This woman has been up all night, kind of writing nonsense on a piece of paper, screaming and just being very bizarre. And the family says she has never done this before. This is totally outside of her norm. And when we get her, her heart rate is, it's fast. It's in the 140s. She's agitated. She's talking a mile a minute. EMS had to give her a little bit of midazolam to transport her safely because she's just so amped. Otherwise, her vital signs are normal. So when we get her, she's she's awake. She can answer all the orientation questions, but she's nonlinear. And she's so agitated that she's actually becoming a little bit aggressive and it's becoming unsafe. Right. It seems very psychiatric, doesn't it, so far? I mean, the the way that you're describing it? Absolutely. It sounds that way. But the daughter is there and the daughter tells us, my mom has never had any sort of episode like this before. She has no psychiatric history. She is able to tell us a little bit of the medical history that the patient cannot provide. She's not providing anything useful. But the daughter tells us that the patient has a history of lupus, a thyroid disorder. And she says she recently was at her doctor She doesn't know exactly what happened at that doctor's visit, but she thinks some medications got changed. The daughter also tells us that yesterday, her mom was acting completely normal. So this is a boom. This is a sudden change in her behavior. And there's no reason here to suspect any trauma happened that the daughter knows about. Okay, so you wanna hear a little exam? Absolutely, yeah. History and exam. Okay, she's moving all of her extremities. She's moving her neck very freely. She's not cooperating with any exam really beyond that. So that's kind of, we do the best that we can, but a lot of this is sort of just stand there and look at her and get as much as you can through observation. So really just emphasizing once again, she's agitated, but she's not sweating. She's not looking toxic. She's just frankly bizarre. Let me pause here and get your thoughts. And that's really, really important. That last part you mentioned, isn't it? That she doesn't look sick per se to you. Let me just start off by saying she's 55, right? She's 55. Let me just start off by saying, because I know that a lot of the way that we discuss patients with altered mental status is sort of dichotomous based on age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of the ideology and the workup, we, that's sort of the underlying thought. That's the way that we're taught because psych disease is more common in younger people, obviously early adulthood and older people more commonly have a medical reason for being altered. Right. But I have to say, 55 is not that old. I agree. And I think that there's, I I just want to talk about it in a little more of a nuanced way and poke a few holes in sort of the traditional thinking about age, because I think it's really important for a case like this. So we often think about these things again, because psych disease is more common in young people, drug abuse is more common in young people, and people that are over 50, that's a, a number that gets bandied about a lot, are much more likely to have metastatic disease, metastatic disease in the brain, especially. And so that's where a lot of the imaging recommendations come from. But again, there's a big difference between 55 and 85 and truly elderly patients. And the reason it's so important for mental status, Jess, is because it takes a lot more of a hit to the system to throw someone in their 50s off their mental status, off their game, so to speak, than it does for an elderly person, right? You wouldn't think of a 55-year-old, an average 55-year-old becoming altered because they got a urinary tract infection, right? That that wouldn't be a common thing, right? right? Whereas this you're for sure thinking about those types of infections causing an acute change in mental status in older patients. It happens all the time, right? So that's, that's an important example. Now, of course, there is this concept of biological age, right? I mean, there's some patients that, have, uh, that are medically fragile. I mean, we know a lot of younger patients that have neurotrauma and that doesn't take much to throw them off their game. And so we do need to think of them in that way. Of course, pediatric patients with special needs often, again, it doesn't take much 
to change a mental status. So I appreciate that, but I think that's often more important than the age itself. So let me stay on age for just one second here. 55, that's the age of the patient that we're talking about. We're not talking about someone who's 20, where you really think a lot about those psychiatric causes as well. Of course, we're there to assess sort of the physiologic, biologic causes before we just anchor on psychiatric illness. But that if the patient's 20, that's much more in the realm where we would say, hey, there's a high probability that this is a new psychotic break, a new presentation of a psychiatric illness. That is not what you should first be thinking in a 50-year-old, and that is not what we were thinking in someone who's in their 50s. And just to finish that discussion, this is, comes up all the time in our practice, Jess, is that there's a bias, an age bias, when it comes to recreational drugs. And it's something that often gets thrown off the differential. Oh, this patient is too old. You know, hey, this happens in nursing homes. This happens universally, especially now. We're having an epidemic of drug use. And uh, you have to have that in a differential at every age. I think that's another important point. So drug use also, of course, on the differential. Maybe we should expand on this for a minute here, Stuart. What are some of the other things that come to your mind that you're considering So in this age group with an acute change in their behavior? Well, you know what I was going to say was that rather than using age to narrow my differential here, I mean, we poked enough holes in it already, haven't we? We said we need to think broadly. Yeah. Is I actually think that the better way to narrow the differential in this case is to hone not on altered mental status, because that's sort of a big, vague term, and actually talk about what change in the mental status are we seeing here, and get more specific and drill down. Because what we're really seeing here, it's a pretty scary and not that common situation when you think about it. When this happens, everyone in the emergency department takes notice. I mean, this is a, a very exceptional thing to have someone who all of a sudden in middle age is acting really bizarrely. It's frightening, right? It's frightening to the family. It's frightening to the staff. It just, you know, it's an, it's an odd event, right? And that oddness helps us to narrow the differential because mm -hmm. really what we're talking about here is a patient with a very specific thing. They've got an acute florid psychosis. In fact, it's a mania. This patient has a mania. That's a manic episode. Absolutely. No matter which way you slice it, not saying what the etiology is, but it's a manic episode. And that really helps us narrow the differential here. And I've thought it out. In fact, it's funny because this case is almost like the perfect case study because she actually has all of the top differentials in terms yes. of causing a, an acute mania, right? Yes. She's sort of the, the ultimate case study. You couldn't have made up a better case, right? And you didn't. It's a real it's case, a real but you case. couldn't have made up a yeah. better case. But here's what I would say was that the first thing you've, you've got to think about in an acute mania is drugs, 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 drugs. And I can't say it enough times, drugs, drugs, drugs. And that doesn't mean just recreational drugs like cocaine or meth, which certainly could cause the syndrome. No question about that, right? But also as patient gets older, they're on a lot of medications. You can have polypharmacy and interactions. One of the, my favorite MRAP pieces of all time was when we talked with Billy Mallon about antibiomania. And he talked about all the different antibiotics that can cause an acute manic syndrome. And we talked about clarithromycin, Cipro. Hey, maybe she got one of those when she was in maybe. the doctor's office. We don't we heard know. About the visit, yeah, right? she doesn't know. Right? And then let's, of course, talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, mm -hmm. which is steroids. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I learned about this effect of steroids, this manic effect. It's actually the commonest side effect of steroids was uh, one of my first patients on the ward. I had a patient with COPD, and we started him on steroids. And then when I came back the next day, everyone was in such a good mood, the family, the patient. And I was like, wow, they're in such a good mood because... The treatment worked. The steroids worked. 
In fact, the patient was in such a good mood that he wanted to dance the polka with me. And we were dancing up and down the hall. And, and, was like, and my attending was thinking to themselves, you know, Stuart really doesn't understand that this is a side effect of the medication that he prescribed. You know, and it was wonderful just to watch that sort of that learning experience unfold as an unwitting participant. So there's no question that steroids can do this. And, and if, that, if that was something that was recently started, that could do this. The other things on the list are decompensated hyperthyroidism. Thyroid meds themselves can cause mania. And so if these were just adjusted, that's for sure a possible cause. One thing that we should point out there, Jess, this is really, really interesting, is that as you get older and as your autonomic system blunts, you mount less of a tachycardic, hypertensive response to thyroid hormone. That's right. You actually can present as an older person with a sudden personality change, with a mania or a depression, and not so much of the vital sign changes like you would if you were younger. That's so interesting. When it comes to mental status, the lesson there is the change in thyroid hormone can absolutely trigger a sudden acute personality change, a mania or a depression in an older patient. So we've got drugs, we've got thyroid disorders. What else do we know about this patient? Well, the daughter told us a history of lupus. So what's that possibly a clue for? There's no question that a diffuse process from lupus and encephalitis, a cerebritis from lupus can cause this type of a syndrome. It's just not the kind of diagnosis that we're used to making in the emergency department because we have to rule out a lot of other things first. And remember, because she does have this autoimmune disease, it puts her at more risk for infection. So it, it even heightens our need to focus on infection first. Right. We have to think about possible infectious etiologies with her. Yeah. Now, uh, we always see CNS infections, meningitis, encephalitis, on the differential diagnosis of altered mental status, right? But again, that's in the broader sense of altered mental status. Is it really likely that someone with a bacterial meningitis is going to come in and have no fever and not look sick medically and be very manic and have this psychiatric type of presentation? Yeah, that's, that's the question you have to ask yourself. We always put them on the differential, but how likely is that? And, and my answer is it's not that likely. It's not that likely to present that way. If there's going to be a CNS infection that's going to present acutely in the psychiatric way, it's more likely, I think, to be an encephalitis rather than meningitis because they can get sick in terms of what's going on with the inflammation in their head first before they manifest a lot of the systemic symptoms, not so much the other way around in meningitis. And so I have seen patients with uh, herpes encephalitis present with a very scary manic type presentation. I can think of a couple of specific cases where it really did look psychiatric at first until it became apparent. One patient spiked a fever soon after, another started looking sick and actually crashed. But they can initially look like that. And so that does need to be on your differential. And that's a big concern, right? At this point, we don't have a lot of information. We can't really even complete an exam aside from watching her. And for safety reasons, we need to get her calmed down so whatever neuro exam that we have, which is very limited, is about to be further diminished by the treatment that she needs to get her calm. Yeah, right. And just to round out the differential diagnosis, Jess, this could be a brain tumor or a, a perineoplastic syndrome. It could be related to cancer. That's certainly described in the literature. There's, there's a lot of cases of patients that present with a sudden personality change because of an underlying uh, brain tumor or a cancer diagnosis. But I think that's going to be pretty easy to rule out. We're going to probably scan her and, and rule that out. And I think that'll be off the differential. And then last but not least is mania 
from a psychiatric disorder itself, acute late-onset mania. And that does exist. But again, uh, it's above our pay grade, isn't it, Jess? I mean, we're going to make sure that everything else is ruled out before we get to that diagnosis. That's right. And so thinking about what is that workup that we need to do, thinking about that broad differential that you just talked through, that's where we were at as well. We knew, number one, we had to control her agitation just for safety of the patient, for safety of the staff. But we had to go a step beyond that because you mentioned getting brain imaging. We need to get a head CT. So we don't just need her calm so she's not attacking people. We need her to lay still so we could put her through the CT scanner safely. So she does calm down. She starts to look better. She's still a little bit tachycardic, but starts looking a little better at that point. Labs. And let me go through with you what we found with that workup. We get labs. We get the head CT. So the labs show kind of nonspecific stuff here. On her CBC, she has a mild leukocytosis. She has a mild metabolic acidosis. She has a mild elevation in her creatinine, which we don't know if this is acute or chronic. We run a bunch of tox labs on her. Who knows if she ingested something? So sending the typical stuff, ethanol, salicylates, acetaminophen, it's all negative. HIV, negative. Syphilis, negative. We check an ammonia level on her. We don't know anything about this lady, but that comes back normal. And then, of course, she has a history of thyroid disease, so we send that TSH comes back very mildly elevated, not really significant with a normal T4. Well, I'm feeling a lot better about it. I'm sure you were at this same point in time. I mean, basically the main things that we were worried about at the beginning, a bad bleed in the head, a bad CNS infection are looking a lot less likely, aren't they? Just on the basis of our history and physical alone. And now with this additional information, I think that we're feeling a lot more uh, secure about that. We're also pretty much going to take thyroid off the table. The TSH is a very sensitive, a very helpful screen in the ER, and I think that does the job for us here. Lupus cerebritis is still possible, right? Like we mentioned, we're probably not going to rule that out during our ED stay, so she might need some further imaging, like an MR for that, a neuroconsult. But again, it, it was unlikely to start with, and uh, her not looking toxic makes it less uh, of a worry for me. And as we said, we're, we're not in a position to make that uh, mania determination quite yet. We still have a lot of things to think about with respect to drugs. Our number one differential and getting that history straight, I think, before we're going to go down that route. So let me share with you sort of what happened next and where our heads were at. This is such an interesting case because if you're thinking about the red flags, the bell is going off constantly throughout this case, right? You have acute onset of a behavior change and a 55-year-old woman. The bell's ringing there. You have a history of thyroid disease. The bell's ringing. You have a history of lupus. The bell's ringing. Possible recent medication change. And when I heard that, between thinking about that and thinking about lupus, one of the top things on my mind on our differential was steroid-induced psychosis, right? And you have to rule out all this other stuff. There's no test for that. And also thinking about what is our next step, right? We talked about maybe she has encephalitis. So once she's calm, you have to go back and you have to do that full head-to-toe exam. So of course she gets admitted to the hospital and she gets all the consultants, neurology, psychiatry, everyone's following along. She gets an MRI. It is not consistent with lupus cerebritis. She gets seen by psychiatry. They feel this is an organic etiology and not primarily psychiatric, which is what we thought as well. And she just improves over the next few days. She gets back to her baseline. She gets discharged four days later and they tell her, 
no more steroids. When I first came to the United States and I was getting a presentation from a senior about a patient with altered mental status, I don't know if they said AMS. And then when they said AMS, I said, I don't know what AMS is. And then they said altered mental status. And I think I said, I don't know what that is. Either, <laughs> I've never heard that term. I just remembered that movie altered states. I, I knew what that was. And I think that had something to do with it. But honestly, it sounds, it sounds weird now to hear, but that wasn't a term that we used in Canada in training, altered mental status. And we had used other terms, but they were more specific ones, right? Coma, stupor, confusion, agitation. Those are all more descriptive and specific. And so I think a big thing is I'm not advocating abandoning the term altered mental status because I do think that you do need to think about it broadly in some cases. But soon after, the broad thing needs to be the honed down specific symptomatology that you're dealing with because that's inevitably going to be necessary to narrow your differential. Summary. Well, thanks, Stuart, for reviewing this case with me. I thought it was a really interesting one and it brought up some great teaching points for me. So just to reiterate, first of all, you talked about how labeling this presentation as mania rather than altered mental status. This is more helpful because it helps us focus the differential. And this patient has multiple reasons to have a manic episode. She has a thyroid disorder. So who knows if her thyroid's too high or too low? She has lupus and she has possible medication changes recently which high on that list here is steroids. That to me is the gorilla in the room, right? Steroid-induced psychosis. And then also the possibility of a CNS infection or a mass. You also talked about how using age is helpful, but not everything. But it does help us narrow in on the fact that she's not in the typical age range of new-onset psychosis. And she's also not elderly, right? She's in her 50s. So this isn't someone who you would expect to become altered from something like a urinary tract infection, unless for some reason the patient was living with a a chronic illness and it didn't take quite as much to affect her mental status as someone who's otherwise healthy. The big item on the differential is drugs, whether it's steroids or antibiotics or levothyroxine or some combination thereof, or even recreational drugs. These are the highest items, but also sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. This patient needs further testing. She's obviously coming into the hospital. Time is going to help her to improve, and it's also going to help reveal the etiology of what was truly going on. And in this case, I feel like, ultimately, I'm going to blame the steroids. Ever since we dispensed with God, we've got nothing but ourselves to explain this meaningless horror of life. You're a wacko. I'm going to blame the steroids. Time for the Ultra Ultra. We're starting off with Megan of House Fix. Abstract three. Okay, friends. Abstract three. This one is about ACL rupture using your physical exam skills. So classically, if you're concerned about an ACL rupture and a knee injury, we learned the Lachman's test and the anterior drawer test. And I'll tell you, I don't know if it's just me, but I have had sometimes difficulty with either of these tests in determining if I really think there's an ACL tear. A lot of this is due to the patient coming in and they're in pain, they're really swollen, and it's hard to evaluate the ACL in the emergency department. But this paper looks at a new test. Now, this has been around for a few years. It's called the Lever test, also known as the Lely test, because I believe Dr. Lely 
described this in the early 2000s. And this test has had a lot of success in OR studies and one small ER study in the past. But essentially, this paper showed that of the three tests for the ACL evaluation in the ED, the lever test is the best one. So the bottom line is you should try this. And I am definitely going to try this. So what you do is you have the patient lying supine. You have both of their legs outstretched. And then you put your fist on basically the back of their calf, the base of their proximal calf. And then you put your other hand on their thigh, so their distal femur. And you're essentially using your fist as a fulcrum to try and push down on the thigh bone. And if the ACL is intact, it will be a fulcrum and you will have the foot go up. So again, imagine your fist is underneath the calf, your hand is on their anterior upper thigh and you are pushing down. And if the ACL is intact, their foot will go up. If the ACL is not intact, their foot will stay on the bed. And we should put a video in to show this because it is a super slick test. And based on this study, it has the best sensitivity for diagnosing ACL rupture of 92.5%. And that was a clear winner over the Lockmans, which was 54%, and the anterior drawer was 56%. So if you're worried about an ACL rupture, try the lever test. Abstract 2. Abstract 2 was titled Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation versus Conventional Rewarmings for Severe Hypothermia in an Urban Emergency Department in Academic Emergency Medicine. And you may have heard about this article, which basically showed that in a retrospective study, looking back in the cold places up in the north of uh, the Americas, that doing ECMO was way better than conventional rewarming for things like, you know, getting the person back. Now, Mike, I think, brings up the most important point, though. This is a small study. It's retrospective. It's subject to bias. It's very important because it's the biggest one to date, but it basically should form the basis of a now prospective study for no other reason than the fact that setting up an ECMO thing, protocols, people, nurses, doctors, ambulances, ICUs, all the stuff is very, very expensive. So you don't want to go out and spend millions of dollars, literally millions and millions of dollars on doing this until we're sure that it's going to work. And that's true of all ECMO. That's true in all of the circumstances. If you've already got it, sure. And I just fell into a lake and I'm frozen, stick me on the ECMO. But before we spend lots of money on this, let's just make sure how big the effect size is. It certainly appears that there is an effect, but how big is it? Is it worth the time, money, and cost? And you can only really answer that with a good prospective study. ECMO. Abstract 4. I liked Abstract 4. It was cosmetic outcomes of simple pediatric facial lacerations repaired with skin adhesive compared with skin adhesive with underlying stereostriptor randomized controlled trial. Not a big study, but this is in pediatric emergency care. And ask the age-old question. In a simple laceration, should you just put steri strips to hold that wound together and then plop some dermal bond over the top of it to give it some more tensile strength? And, you know, the, potentially there could be upsides and downsides to that. It might not work, uh, blah, blah, blah. But they did it in this study and they found that the outcomes were basically the same. This was a clinical study. It looked at, you know, complications early on. And then what did the wound look like about two months later? And they found basically it was about the same. So this is kind of huge because if you've played with Dermatobond, it can get all over the place. And so the idea of actually putting on some strips first, get that wound edge together, and then putting on some Dermabond to give it a little bit of extra tensile strength, particularly between those strips, seems like a good idea to me. And this says it probably is. Not one or the other was magically much better, 
but it certainly wasn't worse, so we like that. Abstract five. Let's talk about abstract number five. This was a randomized study of IV hydromorphone versus IV acetaminophen for acute severe pain in older adults. And this is a really important population to talk about when we discuss pain management because many of us actually undertreat pain in older adults. We're probably less likely to identify severe pain in this population, and also many of us are really worried about side effects from using opioids. So there has been a randomized trial in 2018 that showed that actually hydromorphone did much better in terms of pain reduction in this age group. And this study really wanted to look at, again, IV acetaminophen versus hydromorphone for older adults with severe pain. So they essentially found that hydromorphone did perform better to reduce pain at one hour, but only by about one point. So the authors make a big conclusion that although there was a statistically significant difference, it's probably not clinically different because the IV acetaminophen group also had reduction in their pain. And that makes sense, but I appreciate Sanjay really bringing up that there are some limitations with this study. They excluded a lot of patients. It's not really generalizable for a few reasons. And also, if your patient really needs pain relief, it's okay to give them IV opioids. So bottom line is both acetaminophen and hydromorphone work for your older adults. Acetaminophen had less side effects, but if your patient is in severe pain, do not be shy to give them opioids when they are needed. Abstract 6. Abstract 6, I think, is a super important one. I'm actually very interested in this topic, having missed one of these. So this is imaging characteristics and CT sensitivity for pyogenic spinal infections, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And the upshot of this is that CT scans miss spinal epidural abscess, discitis, infections around the spinal cord a lot of the time. If you just have a general radiologist read these things, they're going to miss it about 50% of the time. It's possible that if you have a super specialist, they're about 80% sensitive, which means they're missing it 20% of the time on CT. And so what this really tells us is a couple of things. One, if you're worried about a spinal infection or a paraspinal infection, but particularly the spinal epidural abscess, you've got to get an MRI. And you've got to get an MRI also of the entire spine because it turns out a lot of these are skip lesions. So you'll have a little bit of discitis over here, and then you'll have a bit of a spinal epidural over there, and you need to really MRI the entire spine. That actually has huge implications for looking after these patients. I have missed one of these. It was when I was a resident. I was with Dave Tallon at Oliver UCLA, and we had an IV drug user with back pain, and we were sure that there was a spinal epidural abscess or meningitis. We got the CT, it was read as negative. We went, both of us went to the radiologist and say, are you sure? Because we're going to put a needle in this guy's back. And they said, no, no, there's nothing there. We put a needle in his back, out came pus, and it turns out, of course, that he had a giant epidural abscess. CT scan is really not very good for this stuff. You can get one, and if it's positive, fine, but you're still going to have to get the MRI because of skip lesions, and you certainly can't believe the negatives, even those that are read by people who are super smart. This just turns out to be a diagnosis that you exclude with MRI. Abstract seven. Abstract number seven was about pediatric nasal foreign bodies. Now, I actually think that this is a super cool part of emergency medicine. When a pediatric patient comes in with a foreign body up their nose, nobody is happy. The child, the parents, you. And there's actually been quite a few methods described to help remove these foreign bodies. You can put Dermabond on a stick and try to pull the object out. You can use many different types of forceps. 
There's also wire techniques, and there's also this, the balloon catheter technique, where you put a balloon catheter past the object, blow up the balloon, and then slowly pull it out. And there's also the ever-popular parent's kiss, where the parent takes their mouth, puts it over the child's open mouth, and occluding the non-obstructed nair, you blow gently. And oftentimes, the foreign body will come out. Previously, this has been described to be quite successful, up to the 60-70% range. And what these authors did in Japan is they did a retrospective chart review of all patients under 6 over a 2-year period who had nasal foreign bodies. And they were trying to discern which method was best for the different types of foreign bodies. They described many different types in their 100-ish patients that they reviewed. And they even talked about Legos and beads and even Othello pieces. Remember that game, Othello? Strategy game, it's really fun. It was a good reminder. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me. So overall, unfortunately, this paper did not tell us which technique you should use for which foreign body. And interestingly, they actually found a much lower first success rate of the parent's kiss method. And Sanjay describes what the authors say about this, which I found fascinating. They describe that potentially the lower success rate for the parent's kiss method was because this was culturally in a different area. This study was done in Japan, and they surmised that maybe based on the interactions between parents and children in Japan, that this method was not as successful. There is a lot of flaws with this study as far as what we can take away from it, but the bottom line is, is that kids come in with nasal foreign bodies. You should learn about a bunch of different methods and try different ones because we really don't know which method is the best for which object. And also remember that depending on where a study is performed, it really makes the generalizability less if there's a cultural component. Abstract 14. Abstract number 14 was about head CTs in psychiatric patients. Now, many of us have been asked multiple times by psychiatry to obtain a head CT for a patient with new onset psychosis prior to them being admitted for psychiatric care. But the question is, how often or what is the yield for doing head CTs on all of these patients with isolated psychiatric complaints? And are we finding a bazillion bread tumors and needing to admit the patient to neurosurgery, etc.? Well, the bottom line of this study is that the yield for doing head CTs on patients with primary psychiatric complaints, and these authors from Yale excluded patients with medical complaints and multiple psychiatric complaints, and they took about 350 patients over a six-year period, and all of them had a head CT for a primary psychiatric complaint, and guess what? Zero of those head CTs had a yield of something positive that was actionable. So let me say that again. Over a six-year period, 350 head CTs were done for primary psychiatric complaints, and the yield was 0%. So it's probably not really zero. We've all known somebody who did have a brain tumor or something else on their head CT, but the bottom line is, is that the yield is extremely low for screening head CTs in patients with primary psychiatric complaints. And because I'm such a nice guy, let me let Megan Fix do the last one. Abstract 20. All right. So Abstract 20 was about the Association of Artificial Intelligence-Aided Chest Radiograph Interpretation. So essentially, this is taking artificial intelligence, or AI, 
a specific engine that helps read chest x-rays. And they had six radiologists ranging from attending to fellow to resident read chest x-rays either with this artificial intelligence or AI or without it. And when you read the paper, it's pretty cool. They have this engine that highlights areas of the chest x-ray just automatically using this AI. And it looks like a heat map, kind of like an arrow sign showing you the parts of the chest x-ray where things may be abnormal. And they had the radiologists read the chest x-rays with the AI and without the AI, kind of in this crossover model using simulated settings. So the radiologists were also in a reading room where it was stressful and they had to read the chest x-rays. Overall, it was a really cool study. And essentially they found that the chest x-rays that were read with the AI or augmented with the AI were increased in sensitivity for finding four things nodules, pleural effusions, pneumothorax, and pneumonia. So I don't know about you, but if I'm reading radiology studies by myself, I kind of would like to have a arrow sign automatically there to help you then look into the study and determine if you think it is real or not. So really interesting, artificial intelligence-aided chest radiographs improves the sensitivity. That's a good place to end, right? Take that paper and clip it, clip it. to the next psychiatric uh, clearance patient that you have. Right? Ooh, right. You should listen to the whole show because there were so many more things. And if you want to be, yeah, you've heard it here before, a literature legend. Legend. Then you've got to listen to the whole show. You've got to listen to Mike and Sunday. I know you don't want to. Don't tell me what I want. But you need to. If you're going to be a literature legend, you'll be so smart. People will bow down and say, my word. Holy shit. How can that person be so smart and so attractive at the same time? It's really hard to pull off unless you listen to the whole show. Then, boom, easy. Boom. everybody we've got a great mailbag segment for you here we are coming to you from the home office this month in peculiar missouri yes i said that correctly it's not a mistake no it's definitely peculiar missouri and i've never been there jan but i kind of want to visit it's well it's kind of a peculiar place if you unlock the door to peculiar missouri what you find might surprise you Letter one. Well, the, here's the letter that we got to Peculiar Missouri from Mark Collins, and it's about temperature. And this is a bit of a long email, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to sum this together. We've had a couple of recent segments on temperature on the show. And what Mark says is critically important are two things in measuring temperature, repetition and position. And when he's talking about position, he's talking about position of the thermometer. And he reminds us that temperature is a vital sign. We talk all the time about tachycardia. We talk about the oxygen saturation. We even talk about the respiratory rate and how we want a really accurate one. We should be talking about temperature the same way. So every time the patient is getting repeat vital signs, they should be getting a repeat temperature. And what Mark really focuses on is how many times in his career that he has had a patient who is afebrile in the vital signs. But then he goes back and measures the temperature again because he says, you know, if this patient has a fever, it's going to critically change the way that I work the patient up. And he finds that they do, in fact, have a temperature. And he says there's lots of reasons why oral temps can be unreliable. One of the main ones is poor positioning, the timing that they just came in through triage, they just drank something, you stick a thermometer under their tongue. And of course, Jan, we also know that the infrared thermometers are inaccurate, not just inaccurate for everybody, but they're particularly inaccurate in some specific minorities. So Mark really talks about the fact that one, you got to repeat the temperature. If you're suspicious that the patient could have a temperature, repeat the temperature. 
consider getting a core temperature. I think that that's really important. It's not something that Mark really focuses on, but he also talks about how to get a good, accurate temperature if you're doing an oral temp to make sure that the thermometer is deep in the mouth, it's lateral to the tongue in close proximity to the lingual artery. That's really where you want to measure that temperature. And Jan, I got to say, everything that Mark wrote makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that we consider temperature a vital sign. If we consider it that way, we got to check it a lot to figure out if that's what's going on. Yeah, we got to treat the, the temperature as something that is really important. And how many times have you gone in to examine a patient, you touch them, they feel hot, they look a little sweaty, the monitor is a little more tacky, and they're like, you know, can we check another temperature? And there's your fever. And it does change things. So I support this concept. You know, in my practice, when the temperature really matters, I do get a core temperature. I don't do it willy-nilly because I, I know it's a pain for everybody, but it's, uh, you know, it you is worth it. a pain in the ass, Jan? It's a, it is a pain in the butt <laughs> for, you know, for the nurses and for the patient, for sure. But, you know, it is a culture thing. In our department, we're pretty generous with core temperatures. And nurses, when they do learn to do it as part of their, you know, their initial assessment, they're getting that really sick patient into a gown. They're kind of rolling around anyway. You know, they can just do it really quickly. You know, it's just like, this is what we do. It's just integrated as to part of our vital signs. I'm not saying in everybody. I'm talking about those really sick patients where it really matters. I think a culture change is really important. That's what we have to really stress is that it should become a routine. If you're worried about a temperature, get a core temp. We have tons of data that tells us that these peripheral temps are inaccurate. And I agree with Mark that maybe they're inaccurate because they're not taken properly. But I think it's also the fact that a core temperature is there for a reason. That's what we really need. And so if it's really going to swing your decision in your workup, get the core temp done. And Jan, I can't tell you how many times repeating the temperature or getting a core temp completely changed my process in thinking about the patient. The one that I always remember is a patient I saw my intern year in fast track with knee pain. The guy walked in off the street with knee pain and you know he's like, I don't have any trauma, but I got him an x-ray anyway. And he was waiting around for the x-ray for a while. And one of our very skilled nurses went in to reevaluate him. And she's like, I don't know. He feels kind of hot to me. I'm going to get a core temp. And she comes back out and goes, he's 102.5. And I'm like, wait, knee pain. And he's got a fever. It's got to be a septic joint. And I don't know, the knee was a little warm, but it was a little swollen. We stuck a needle in it, ton of pus. Went to the yeah. OR, had the knee washed out. And I think to myself, I could have easily missed that if it wasn't yep. for that fantastic nurse. I'm going to give a shout out, Donna Kennedy. Donna Kennedy was my guardian angel that day, made sure I didn't miss that septic joint. And I have learned so much from that experience. Usually people named Donna are good people. That's kind of my experience. I don't know. Treat yourself. But you know what? That patient with that knee pain was probably in some kind of a fast track, some kind of in it, you know, when he's just sort of a quickie things. And that's where, you know, things like this, we get a little sloppy with. We're trying to process patients per hour with their knee pain. So, you know, the temperature can really matter. And if we're going to get it, we're going to take the time to do it. Let's do it right. Yeah, I think Mark would agree. I know you would agree. I would agree. This is not something that we're saying you're doing it wrong. What we're really saying is we are doing it wrong. We have done this wrong before. We know that there's a flow that you got to work with and, and this can kind of take you out of that flow, but it really can make a huge difference. So Mark, thanks for reminding us that the temperature is in fact a vital sign and we have to measure it properly and we want that information and we want to use that information to influence our workup. Mark, thanks for your letter and for everyone out there in MRAP land, Keep those letters coming. The town's original name was Excelsior, but due to a mix-up with the United States Postal Service, the town was named Peculiar, and it was never changed. Or take Exhibit B, the Down Home Cafe, which offers a tenderloin breakfast for only $9.49. Or bend your mind to the sheer insanity of a bakery 
is open 24 hours, and a horse hospital that closes at 5. Everything here is so peculiar. There's the peculiar thrift store where Quindigo... Mega, 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 monster! Like that? <laughs> well, Swami, it's time for the mega summary. Are you ready? I am re- I'm mega ready, Jan. I am mega, mega ready for the mega summary. Let's uh, do it. Yes. Swami Mega Mega Ready Let's do it. All right. Absolutely. Segment number one that we led off with was taking the critically ill patient to CT scan. This was with Scott Weingart. And I think this is a really important concept for us to wrap our heads around. There's a, a bit of a, a paradigm shift that Scott brings up right from the beginning, which is that we often talk about the patient is too sick to go to CT. But I don't know what their diagnosis is because I need the CT to make that diagnosis. And so we have to balance those two things and say, I understand this patient is really sick, but the CT scan is what's going to clinch our diagnosis. And if that's the case, let's get the patient there as safely as we possibly can. So anytime we're sending a critical patient to CT, they have to be with a nurse and or a doctor. Honestly, it should be both in most cases. I guess there's a situation where the CT scanner is right around the corner and you're like, okay, They're going to go with a nurse and and I'm right here, just overhead and I'll be right over there. But this is not the patient that should go with a transporter to CT. Key point number two was to balance our resuscitation needs with the need to go to CT. So some stuff you got to do before they go to CT. If they need a critical procedure like intubation or a chest tube, pericardiocentesis, do that first because you don't want to do that in the CT suite. If they need blood products, go ahead and start blood products, but you might still bring them over to CT while those blood products are going in. And we know that in trauma, the idea that, oh, this patient is so sick, they're just going to go to the OR has really changed because our CT scanners are becoming faster and faster and give more information. So a lot of patients that in the past would have gone right to the OR are hitting the CT scanner first, which means that we want to use the time in the CT scanner to continue resuscitation. So you can have the blood hanging. And then when they have those little pauses in the CT where they readjust the patient or do something, that's your time to hang more blood. That's your time to titrate your vasopressors or titrate your antihypertensives in the patient that you're worried about a dissection. And then finally, Scott mentions the fact that if you're going to CT with that critical patient, make sure you have all the equipment and medications that you could possibly need while you're there. So if you didn't intubate the patient, make sure to bring your airway equipment. Make sure to bring your intubation medications. You don't want to be running around trying to find those. Bring that extra blood. Bring any medications that you might need, especially if you're going further to get that CT scan. If the CT scans on another floor, If it's down the hallway, or if you work in a rural place where the CT scanner is in the town next door, you got to bring as much as you can with you that you might need later on. And I think if we do all those things, Jen, we can scan safely, get the diagnosis, and get the patient off for definitive treatment faster. This can be so tricky. The art of the decision of when to CT with the really, really sick person. You know, when I was training, our CT scanner was on the third floor. So during all my years of residency, the doctor always went with this patient to CT. Anyone that was like marginally sick, we would send one of the residents with them. And so I kind of grew up in this culture that the doctor should go with the patient to CT. That's just how we did it. I spent so many hours in CT. I knew the techs all by name. I'd sit there and chat with them as they were running the scan. Anyway, it was it was great. And I believe in this fully. At our place, if it's a trauma activation, the trauma team takes the responsibility of going with the patient to CT. So nurse goes and the trauma team or somebody on the trauma team goes. We don't do the same thing with the medical patients. We don't have any requirement for it, but I have a requirement for it. And I'm always encouraging the doctors to go with a sick patient to CT because honestly, that, whole, that time that that patient's gone, you're always worried about them. It's better to just be there with them so that you're 
you just know what's going on because that call for the code or the you know decompensating person in CT is so scary. It is just not the place you want to do things. So anyway, love the piece. I could not agree more. Rural medicine talks. All right. So for rural medicine this month, we had Vanessa Cardi telling us an interesting story about epistaxis that had already resolved. And I always find that a really interesting scenario when someone comes in with epistaxis and it's over, but you like they're still concerned about what happened. And this is one of those cases. This is an 18-month female who was brought into this remote ER for a nosebleed that lasted for like 15 minutes. And the family described it as pretty heavy. And the kid didn't have any trauma and wasn't really a nose picker. The baby's in triage and the bleeding has stopped. But you got to think about it, right? So the history, they ask a few questions and the child has had a mild iron deficiency anemia that was diagnosed when she was nine months and she had been taking some iron and on subsequent labs it had resolved, but that was really it on her history. Her heart rate was 180, her pulse ox was 100%, and the kid was really scared. She's screaming, she's flailing around, but the very astute physician did a very thorough physical exam, super important in cases like this where you're kind of thinking about doing nothing, you got to at least take a closer look. On this thorough exam, it was noted that the baby had a large bruise on the underside of her chin, and she also had some bruising behind both of her ears. And if you looked at the arms and legs, there's some bruises there that are in different stages of healing. So, of course, the diagnosis at that point was like, well, is this like a coagulation or a platelet disorder, or could this be non-accidental trauma, which I think are reasonable thoughts. So some labs are ordered, hemoglobin comes back low at 6.6, and the platelets are zero. And I mean zero. So at that point, of course, the call is made for transfer to the children's hospital. And they talk through kind of what is the differential at this point? And is there anything you need to do emergently? So at the top of the differential would be malignancy and ITP for this 18-month-old. It turns out the white count was normal. And this child, again, has what looks like an iron deficiency anemia. And they called the pediatric hematologist to kind of talk through what do I need to do now? Do I need to give platelets? What can I do? And they said, yes, give platelets with a platelet count of zero and also IVIG. And at this rural hospital, they did not have any platelets to give, but they did have IVIG. And so they administered that with an age-appropriate protocol. The other thing to do is wrap the child immediately in bubble wrap and do not let this child bump into any chairs, fall down, which is not easy with an 18-month-old. But seriously, that is something that they had to advise the family, which is all of a sudden we got to be really, really careful. They also wanted to give PRBCs for the anemia, but in this particular case, what was recommended was irradiated PRBCs, and those were not available at this small hospital. So they did point out that if you do have to give non-irradiated blood in a case like this, try to draw baseline viral cultures, which is kind of interesting, before the transfusion, because that may be part of the bone marrow workup down the line. Child goes to the children's hospital, actually does quite well, but an interesting case of zero platelets. I would be so tempted, Jan, to look at this kid flailing in triage, who is no longer having a nosebleed and say, you can follow up with your doctor tomorrow. I'm done with this patient. And so good on these clinicians for doing that physical exam, finding that bruising. The initial thought in my head was non-accidental trauma for sure. But once you get that platelet count of zero, you start going down that pathway. These are not common presentations. And it's even more reason why you have to do at least the physical exam. The physical exam comes back fine. You can always say, okay, I'm not finding anything here, but these are tricky. And that platelet count of zero, like you said, that's pretty low. I would be worried about intracranial hemorrhage at that point and thinking about, do I need to scan this kid? Maybe I don't have a scanner where I am, but either way, they clearly need to get whisked away to some place that is not my rural ED for the rest of that workup and the rest of that management. Great case. 
Great case. And of course, as the transfer occurs, you're like, everyone be careful. Don't bump <laughs> into anything. We rarely carry <laughs> bubble wrap in our emergency department, but I might just stock one roll just in case. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric Our next piece, Jan, was on the unvaccinated kids. One of the pieces that you said up front you really liked. This was with Eileen Claudius and Jeff Seiden and Al Sacchetti. Now, they started as doing this kind of pro-con debate style, and it's really morphed, and it really is more of the two of them, Jeff and Al, really kind of piece together the way they do things and, and maybe how we should all be thinking about changing the processes that we do. And they start by mentioning the fact that the febrile child management has dramatically changed in the last two decades as we've had more vaccines and more kids have been vaccinated against things like strep pneumo, obviously H influenza, but now we're seeing those declining vaccination rates which makes us question, do we need to go back to 20 years ago when we were doing pretty extensive workups for these kids? And we're focusing really on the kids that are over two months of age. We've already addressed the kids under two months of age in the past. This is for the little bit of older kid where you can get a little bit of an exam and the vaccinations really do make a big difference. And so they both go through their approaches. And Al says, you know, if I've got an unvaccinated kid, I default back 20 years ago to the way we used to do things. So I'm ordering blood cultures, I'm getting a CBC, and if that white count is over 15, but the kid looks great, I might give him a dose of ceftriaxone and have him follow up in 24 hours. And Jan, that's how I grew up. I remember having all of these kids, when you did your peds block as a resident, you'd send them home and you'd see them the next day. And sometimes they get another dose of ceftriaxone while they're waiting for the blood cultures to grow out. That's really changed. And Jeff really echoes how those changes have come about with more vaccinations. And he says, you know, remember, it's not just about the kid in front of you being vaccinated, but it's also about local prevalence of disease and local vaccination rates. So if you live somewhere where vaccination rates are really, really high, or more importantly, the patient does, but the patient's unvaccinated, you might still be treating that kid as a vaccinated kid, especially if there's a low disease prevalence. So we have to take those things into mind. And, and Jeff says, you know, because of that, I don't really think that we should have a routine approach for all of these kids. We're really going to have to go based on the kid in front of us, the community that they're coming from, and the disease rates and the vaccination rates. And I can't say that Al's wrong. I can't say that Jeff is wrong. I think there's a lot of truth in both of these approaches that we need to integrate. Yeah, this is a really tricky area because of exactly what you said. It's really about the kid in front of you, where they live, are they vaccinated, what is the prevalence? And there's, again, kind of a lot of judgment that goes into this. But knowing that we don't want to miss you know, serious bacteremia in these kids. So you know, if you're unsure, go the conservative route. You know, that's what Al kind of advocated for. You know, if I'm not sure, I'm just going to do what I know was safe back in the day when we were not having as many vaccinated kids. And so we'll, we'll see how guidelines change if they do at all or whether it's always just sort of an asterisk, which is consider the case in front of you. Our next segment was my favorite of the month, which is an acute case of mania with Jess Mason and Stuart Swadron. And Jen, this was a case of a 55-year-old woman who comes in with bizarre behavior. She's got a history of lupus. She's got a history of a thyroid disorder, but she's never had this kind of bizarre behavior before. She's a little tachycardic, a little agitated, but she's non-toxic appearing. And the first thing that Jess and Swad remind us of is that new onset psychosis or primary psych issues really are a diagnosis of exclusion, especially when you're talking about a 55-year-old woman. That's not the age group that has their first acute psychotic break. So we have to put psych stuff in the back of our head and really focus on the medical stuff with this huge, broad differential. Could it be an adverse drug reaction? Could this be related to her thyroid disease or to her lupus? Could she have lupus cerebritis? Could it be a CNS infection? And then of course, at the end of that, maybe it's primary psych, but that's not where I'm gonna go first. 
And so in this particular case, they got a head CT, which didn't really show much. They admitted the patient to the hospital and she kind of spontaneously improved. As she improved, they started to get more information. And what it turned out was that the patient had recently been started on steroids for her lupus. And they thought that this was probably a steroid-induced psychosis. And I think it's a good reminder that steroids can cause acute psychosis. I think sometimes we forget because we don't see it all the time. They talk about it being in much higher doses, but I've seen it even at the 50 or 60 milligrams of prednisone that we sometimes send patients home on. Not to say that we shouldn't be giving steroids appropriately, but just remember that this is a possibility. It's something to think about, but I think that they did everything right here, which was not assume that it was some relatively benign cause, but do that full altered mental status workup, admit the patient, and then see what pans out. And fortunately, this patient did very well. Yeah, it's a great reminder about steroids. They're not a free shot. I think we all know that. But this psychosis thing is real. I also, I know a close friend who had given steroids for a musculoskeletal indication, which was probably a soft call, and ended up in the hospital with steroid-induced psychosis. So this is not that unusual. And, you know, drugs in general, there's fluoroquinolones, there's lots of drugs that can cause psychiatric, neuropsychiatric symptoms. So, you know, getting a good drug history, which isn't easy from a patient who's psychotic, is going to be, you know, an important part of figuring this all out. Fecal transplant gives a crap. Exactly. Our next segment was on C. diff diarrhea. And Jen, how can we possibly have a month without talking about diarrhea? I I think it is in the MRAP bylaws that we must talk about diarrhea as many times as humanly possible. And we sat down with Britt Long to talk about C. diff diarrhea. And Jen, I I don't know, I'm sure we've mentioned this before, but the first segment I ever did for MRAP way back in 2008 was about C. diff. And I am also contractually obligated to bring up that piece as many times as possible because it was my co-chief resident who had C. diff and it was my antibiotic prescription that caused his C. diff. So I've always had an interest in this topic because of how it kind of hit close to home. He had a very long course of C. diff. He tells me he is C. diff free, which is great. But Britt and I kind of dive into all of the different aspects of C. diff, looking at the classic, and I'm putting classic in quotation marks, presentation of diffuse abdominal pain, watery stools, recent antibiotic use or hospitalization. And of course, noting that patients don't always have the classic presentation, but most of the time patients will have abdominal pain. They'll frequently have fevers. And most of the time they will also have watery diarrhea. But we have to focus on the fact that C. diff can come in this bit of a spectrum. You can have the patients who are really not that sick. They have a couple of loose stools a day, maybe a low-grade fever, but pretty well-appearing. You can also have severe colitis where they've got distension and hypovolemia. They've got diffuse abdominal pain. And then you can have fulminant C. diff, which is where they're shocky. They're third spacing tons of fluid. They've got an elevated lactate and they can develop megacolon. And so we do have to tease out those groups and say, where does this patient lie on that spectrum? There are some tools we can use to grade the severity. Britt mentions the Atlas and Gauche severity indices, not something that I'm very familiar with, but they will be in the show notes for people to look up and and look at. We go through all of the different testing and when to use which assay, when to use a culture, all of these different points. And then we finally, we focus on treatment and how treatment has really shifted. Because back in the day, it was give them some oral flagell and call it a day. Then it was, well, you know what? Oral vancomycin might be better than oral flagell. And now we've really kind of shifted and said, flagell is no longer our first line therapy. It's either oral vanc or even better is oral fidaxomycin. Fidaxomycin is probably the standard treatment, except it's expensive and not all of our patients can get it. And so we still do sometimes go back to that oral vancomycin, but some of that is also going to change based on how sick the patient is. And so we have to consider the severity of illness when we look at the different antibiotics that we can use. 
I think this is a great review. Yes, the treatment options have been updated in the last few years. So if you hadn't reviewed the topic, I'm sure you learned something from it. C. diff is an important thing. We spread it a lot around in hospitals. One thing I tell the residents is, you know, when you when you suspect C. diff, if they have a risk factor, if it sounds like a story, and you can't always tell, you know, just from the, the history, but it's important to isolate these patients and put a contact precaution sign on the on the room, you know, if you start to think about it, because we don't want to spread this around to other vulnerable patients, and it's better to be safe than sorry. So those precautions are important. People need to wash their hands. That's such a good tip. And I think if the patient has diarrhea, don't use the hand sanitizer stuff when you're going out of the room. That, That's right. Just wash your hands with soap and water, because who knows if C. diff is what you're dealing with. Rebecca Bavilek. Next up was Jess Mason talking to Rebecca Bavilek about chest pain and pregnancy. Now, this is a topic that Rebecca's talked about before. And they're doing a little bit of a deeper dive and specifically focusing in on the PE rule out. How do you rule out PE in patients who are pregnant? Because they're already naturally tachycardic. We know that they're at risk, et cetera. So some of the key takeaways from this piece were that the incidence of PE does increase with each trimester. So the further along you go, the more coagulable you get. If you do see someone who's pregnant with tachycardia in the 130s, for example, that's really well above the expected mild tachycardia that can be seen in pregnancy. So it should, you know, raise your suspicion a little bit more for something going on. Certainly the workup should start with an extremity Doppler. Ultrasound is radiation free. We talked about earlier in one of the other pieces about how it's a little bit easier to get these days, and we can often do it ourselves. So if there's any symptoms or signs of DVT, ultrasound is a great, great way to start. Because if you find the clot there, then you don't really need to move to the radiation, et cetera, because you can anticoagulate. If you do need to go with further Im imaging, they talk about the whole CTPA versus VQ scan. Both of those things have radiation. Both of those tests have some issues with them. Remember that often these scans are non-diagnostic. That's particularly true in VQ scan, but it can also be true in CTPA as well. That could be because of the timing of the dye and the hyperdynamic state of pregnant people. There could be also other reasons as well. But you have to consider your hospital's resources what kind of technicians you have available, your radiologist level of comfort in reading these things to make decisions. But you want to do the scan that patients need to do. It was a great kind of in-detail discussion. There's some really big points in here that I think are important for us to remember. You can use a D-dimer in pregnancy. Just remember that there are adjustments and there are some accepted thresholds that change with that. To remember that first trimester pregnancy, they don't really have that much of an increased risk, but in second and third, it obviously goes up. And, and don't forget the postpartum period as well especially if they have a C-section. Jeff Klein has reminded us of this many times that a C-section is a major surgical procedure. And so that patient's risk for DVT and PE is increased up to six to eight weeks after the C-section. So we have to keep that in mind for that postpartum patient. And that lower extremity duplex can be so useful to make that diagnosis without really any radiation. Jan, I often will just do the ultrasound, even if they don't really have clinical symptoms of DVT, but they're pregnant and I'm worried about a PE, thinking that I might be able to escape this situation without that radiation. And I often do both legs, even if they have unilateral symptoms. I often look at both legs just because we know that sometimes they can have an asymptomatic DVT on the other side. Josh Boucher. That brings us to our last segment of the month. I got to sit down with Josh Boucher and talk about atrial fibrillation and cardioversion risks. And we talk about atrial fibrillation all the time we really focus on this risk of stroke and how do I know that this patient doesn't have a clot? Can I really cardiovert them? And Josh points out that patients with atrial fibrillation clearly are at a higher risk for stroke, but that the best evidence shows that appropriate cardioversion of a low-risk group, especially within 48 hours, 
is safe. And Ian Steele has done a ton of work on this issue, a ton of work in this area. We've talked about a lot of those studies in the past. So we should feel that it's okay to cardiovert if we've got a good story in a low risk patient. He then goes into some of the actual risks that we have to think about. So dysrhythmias after electrical cardioversion, people worry about this. And there is a theoretical risk for Brady dysrhythmias and asystole, but the data that we have shows that it is extremely uncommon. We probably don't have to worry about it that much. The area he says we do have to remember to be worried about are the complications from procedural sedation. The electricity itself probably isn't going to cause a complication, but procedural sedation we can often get into trouble with. We actually have a segment on procedural sedation coming up in the next couple of months with Scott Weingart, kind of going through all of the ins and outs of doing a safe procedural sedation. And Josh just reminds us, don't think that it's just the electricity that's the risk. Focus on doing a good, safe procedural sedation. My go-to here, Jen, is Atomidate because it's so short acting. I get enough time to cardiovert the patient and then they're awake. It's not really a big titration. I never use midazolam because I feel like it's just asking for respiratory issues when you get the patient deep enough. But Atomidate's my go-to. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on doing this safely? I agree. I like to accommodate for this as well. You know, it's such a short procedure that, you know, propofol sometimes can seem like a bit of a bit of overkill, but I'm fine with it too. I do think that your point about, you know, you do have to think about this as a procedural sedation. While the shock is a very quick shock, you're still doing a procedural sedation. And often this may not be in the healthiest person, right? This could be someone who is on the older side or has coronary artery disease. And so you do have to, you know, just sort of step back for a moment and think about what are those risks. Now, overall, it's a very, very safe thing to do. But we have to be prepared, even though the shock is like instantaneous, that the risks there are really associated with the sedation. We got to be ready for those. Absolutely. And Jen, with that, we're done for the month. We're done for January, first month of 2023 in the bag. Jen, this is going to be the best year of MRAP ever. I'm putting my stamp of guarantee on it right now. Best year of MRAP ever. (laughs) I think it is going to be the best year of MRAP ever. We are talking in the background about some changes and they're going to be fun changes, good changes. We always want to keep things new and interesting for you guys. And so, you know, we really are looking forward to this year. And here you are starting out the first month of a new year. It's going to be a great year, everybody. Let's just be positive and get excited. Absolutely. There's so much stuff to be positive about, Jan. We're going to focus on all of that positive stuff. We're going to channel that energy into our upcoming shifts. But until then, everyone out there, remember to keep doing what you do because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. To present it as a wonder drug or something that's going to solve all of our problems, I think is fraught with consequences. I'm afraid I'm going to miss this diagnosis if the woman isn't presenting with acute severe pain. If you can get some air into their lungs, your chances of saving them are very high. The problem is that this Pentad is not reliable. It's present in less than 7% of cases. If the urine output is poor, then either you were wrong or the disease process is gearing up to kick your butt. And I don't think butt was the exact word you used. 